Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Jet oh God. <laughs> Just and terrified at the same time. Yeah. Uh I got a new mic. Yes. And uh it's freaking me out. I should let the dear listeners know that at some point, I can't remember when, but deep into this show, I want to say like episode 45 to 50, Christy reveals to me that she's never been able to hear herself <laughs> during our records. And I was like, I have to get you a new mic. This is crazy. Um, so anyway, it's a whole new world. Yeah. Yeah. As as Ariel would say. Don't you dare uh, close your eyes. Now I've done yeah. a mashup. Well, I like it. I, uh, it's weird. Uh, cause yes, we, uh, it was when we did the, when we used to have earbuds. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't so bad. But then, then we got the cans. Yes. And, uh, which s- cleared up any sort of like audio issues that we ever had. And it was great. And then my comment to you was like, oh, yeah, I actually can't hear myself. So I'm like shouting into the void. <laughs> And it sounds like I'm underwater because I can't hear my own voice. And <laughs> uh, then you very sweetly uh, ordered me the mic. And I was like, oh, it's here. I can't wait. And my husband was like, you should, you know, take a few minutes, do a test run. And I was like, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Didn't. Uh, and so as we were getting started here, it was okay. And then I was like, oh, my God. Why is she so loud? She is me. <laughs> <laughs> A joke. I mean, very similar. <laughs> the, the thing is, I I am not used to hearing my own voice, so it's it's weird because it's it hasn't been that long that we've had the headphones, but it feels like it's been forever. Yeah, yeah. So it it's it's been a real. This is a real 
Well, we did weird. try adjusting yeah. levels for a good 15 minutes when we first logged on. And she kept saying, like, I just sound so loud. And then eventually got to the point where I was like, I think it's just, I think that's just normal. Like, I was like, I think by the end of this record, you're just going to be used to it. Like, I, I don't yeah. think you are loud. Yeah, well... Well, I mean, <laughs> relatively you know, speaking, relatively of speaking. course. Uh, the other joke is it sits differently than my other mic. So I'm like, oh, how close do I have to be? Where do I have to sit? Well, the bottom like almost rests on the tits. And so anytime I'm worried if I hit it, it's going to like bounce. So I'm just like, maybe I, I do one of these, like a like a Richard Dawson trying to kiss over the podium. <laughs> <laughs> That's a callback. That's a callback to the Bob Crane episode of the show, which yeah. is not as much of a romp as the Glee curse. <laughs> if you haven't listened to it, check it out. That is a bit that I will not let die. Um, I won't let you. Oh, it just got brighter over there. Did you turn on a light? I I didn't. I moved slightly. Okay, something's in the air. I think there's some magic happening. That's all I'm going to say. There's a wolf moon tonight, and I'm feeling, oh, it's power. Um <laughs> It should also yep. be noted, I'm still in dry January. I'm stone sober. Uh, but I have been burning some incense, and I feel very high. Um, very high. It's not meant to do that, but you know what I mean. I'm just kind of in that in that mind space. But on that note, what yeah. you drinking over there? <laughs> um, I, uh, I've got a water... And a cherry Kool-Aid. <laughs> Wowzer. Not at all what I expected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I loved Kool-Aid as a child. Um, and then they kind of, they stopped, they slowly stopped selling it in the powder. Mm. You could get the little squeeze one that you mm. put in water. But, and my kids used to love those. But my, my kids, like, hook a Kool-Aid jammer to them like an IV and they're good to go. They love the Kool-Aid jammers. I just find they don't taste the same to me. Yeah. So I'm like, no thanks. And I was at a dollar store recently and there was a large pouch of cherry powdered Kool-Aid. And I was like, I've got to try that. Um, And brought it home. And I was like, just want to see what it's like. And my husband's like, yeah, sure. Let's see what it's like. We try it. My first sip, I immediately said, oh, my God, I feel my childhood. And I had to go back and get more. And we now have a jar that we fill with the powder because now we just make it jugs of it almost daily. And it's mostly me and my husband consuming it because we're so jazzed. And the nostalgia, there's something about it. So, yeah, I have gone non-boozy. And just go on with a Kool-Aid because it's refreshing and I like it and it takes me back. Like I'm, when I drink it mentally, I'm drinking out of a plastic bear because I had, I don't know if you remember the plastic bear juices, but we used to rinse those out and then save them because I was a dummy. I wouldn't know. Put a Kool-Aid in it. I'll never know it's a different (laughs) juice. You know, I loved it. I remember those. I definitely remember those. Well, listen, you're in good company because I over here, I'm double fisting. I got my traditional Diet Coke going. And then inexplicably, I've got this Nixie brand sparkling water, but it's peach black tea flavor. And basically what I'm telling you is, is that I have consumed more caffeine today 
than a human should consume in probably a week. I I yep. I was on the run today. Just I had to I got my hair done and stuff like that. So I was going like place to place, and I just got to. I, I was hungry and I was thirsty and I was near a Whole Foods and I was like, you know, I'm just gonna I'm gonna pop in. I'm just gonna grab and go. And for yeah. some reason, there was no. And I, I listen. I know that people bottled water. I know is, is problematic because of the, the bottles. I get sure. it. But it was like I was so thirsty. I was all I had had thus far that today was like a coffee, um, so and breakfast. So I was like, I gotta like I gotta find something. Could not find any bottled water, but also was in a rush, and I didn't want to buy a case. And so I go in. It's like it's just a it's a complete case of kombucha, and I don't like it. Okay, and I know people love it, and I just don't. I just. <laughs> Don't. Not everything has to have probiotics, okay? Like some of us, it's too much for us. Yeah. And so literally, without exaggeration, this was the only option for me. It was also warm. I also could not get a chilled one. I was like, okay, fine. And then when after I checked out, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Iced tea. There's going to be more caffeine. I didn't mean to. I didn't intend to. Anyway, that's also partly, partly, that's also partly the reason um, that I probably seem a little intoxicated because I'm, I'm buzzing at a level that no human being again is meant to. I'm drunk on caffeine is the point. Caffeine and incense. Caffeine and incense. The Lauren Ash story. <laughs> Feels right. Feels right. I, feel I get young. it. I feel alive. Um, now, listen, of course, this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, the famous, the infamous Sid and Nancy. Uh, now, I got to ask. Yeah. I know that when you research, when you work, you always listen to music. Were you yeah. into, you know, were you getting into the vibe? Were you listening to the the punk music as you were researching? Uh, I mean, I when I did Tupac, I yeah. was listening to Tupac. I listened to Nirvana during Kurt Cobain, Biggie for the Biggie episode. And this time it was an obvious, like, I could do Sex Pistols. I could do, you know, any sort of punk music. I went another route oh um again with the nostalgia it's it's where we're at it's you hit 40 and you're just longing for everything from the past apparently yeah i don't know uh so out of nowhere i don't even remember how it started but weeks ago uh the the now cds came up in conversation mm. in america and possibly in the UK, it was called Now That's What I Call Music, but in Canada, it was specifically just Now. And so I was like, oh, yeah, we had Now 2 and 3. And I was like, let's bust those out again. So we put it in our very classy five CD disc changer <laughs> that we have in our living room as like dinner music. And I was like, oh, this gives. And so then I was like, ah. Oh. Well, I hate the idea of only owning number two and number three of however many. So I was like, well, I can't own them all, but I could own a certain amount. I have to at least have one so I can say I have one, two, three, because then I won't, I won't sleep at night if I don't. So I'm like, okay, I'll look at, I'll just look at the track list for number one. The point is I now own one through eight uh, <laughs> because <laughs> I started going through track lists and let me tell you what a joy it, oh God, I don't even know how to get into it. Um, for example, I have a few playlists. I'm not going to read the entire things because they're long. But in a single album, this is from Now 3. Okay. Again, specifically Canadian version. It comes in hot with Chumbawamba. I get knocked down. 
3 a.m. Matchbox 20. It's 3 a.m. I'm up and lonely. <laughs> this is already my new favorite game. <laughs> Marcy Playground Sex and Candy. <laughs> <laughs> Again, favorite game. Uh, Meredith Brooks Bitch. I'm a bitch. I'm a yeah. Uh, I don't even think if I... Oh, The Wallflowers, The Difference. Oh my god, I forget that one. It's okay. It's Is okay. It, You've you got this one. In. Come on, try a little. It's got to be something better than in the middle. Is that it? Put it out. No, that's, oh, the, that's, oh, that's one that's headlight. Headlight. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Well. Uh, well, you got this one. Paula Cole, I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. For Pacey to buy me a wall. I wish I would have been there if I could. He bought her a wall. He bought her a wall. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> has, has anyone ever reached that status? I mean, uh, come on. Uh, Janet Jackson, Together Again. Jules, oh. Foolish Games. Oh. The Verve, Bittersweet Symphony. You loved I, that song when it came out. I did. You loved I it. Did. I did. I was obsessed. Uh, Econoline Crush, Lisa Loeb, Sister Hazel, Great Big C, Spice Girls, all on one album. I get the concept of like an album like this, but it just blows my mind. And so I was reading the different things and I'm like, I have to get all of these. And then I think I got to now nine and I was like, oh, that's less fun. Uh, so that was, I decided I can stop at eight. Uh, it turns out that Canada went to number 28 oh my in 2017 word. and stopped. There's like now country, now 90s, now Christmas, now like they're, they have kept going. But there are so many countries that have their own now. Like America has the most, they, <laughs> America, st America started in 1998 and as of 2021 they've put out now 80 wow but the uk my friends oh yeah <laughs> the uk started in 1983 and in 2021 released now 110 110 <laughs> yeah and wow. there's no sh no sign of stopping and i mean we've got France, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Poland, Norway, Hungary, South Korea, like every single, all of these countries, and they all have their own version. So whatever version you listen to might not be the version that we're talking about. Because my my love was like specifically the Canadian ones that, because uh, they throw in like there's one that has the Moffats on it. And I'm like, oh, yes, please. Um Oh, God. And then that has beautifully transitioned into Hit Zone 1 and 2. Of course. <laughs> because, as you do, um, Hit Zone 2 has 5440 on it. And it's like, oh. where else are you going to find a compilation randomly with 5440 on Ocean it? Ocean Pearl? Was it Ocean Pearl? Uh, it's Love You All. Oh, I loved Love You All. Yeah. I love that Dog's one. Eye View, Ace of Bass. Oasis, Gin Blossoms, SWV. I mean, these don't stop. And so I go online and yeah, I'm I'm still buying I'm still buying CDs apparently. Our record player was broken and I think I was filling a void. Not the point. <laughs> the point is 
what I wouldn't give for one of these now albums to come out on vinyl because, oh God. I mean, if anyone, and this is a different thing that I've always wanted, but if anyone uh, who works for much music is listening, I would like the big shiny tunes on vinyl as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you don't even have to do all of them, just for sure the first two. And then big shiny 90s. Yeah. And then and then I'm probably fine and I won't ask more. Except can I speak with George Strombolopoulos? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Blanche, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the, welcome to the show. Um, I have a couple of follow-up questions. Number yeah. one, Great Big C. Is the track on that one, Mary Mac? Was that the track on there? Oh, I'm just out of curiosity. If you don't have it a handy, don't worry about it. I'm asking. Uh, what was the What was the one I said? Great big C. I think it was the one that you were listing all of them. Oh God! Where I was, You'll I love- started out singing them all, and then I I gave up. Oh, great big C. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. It. They do a great version yeah. of that. That was a great one. Now, uh, here's a fun fact. Mother Laurel's yeah. favorite band, Great Big C. I've seen Great Big C in concert, consequently, like seven or eight times, many times, many times. How would I never have seen that coming? Yeah, she loves them. She loves them. And listen, I love them too. They put on a great show, honest to God. Sure. I've seen them enough times now, I can, I can attest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we trust your opinion after seven or eight times. Now, my wow. question is, do you yeah. want to hear the most wild synchronicity of all of this? Of course I do. Under the wolf moon? Of course Under the I wolf- do. Oh, Okay, that's not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> I would and it like just it looks like it got brighter over there again. It might be my eyes. Again, <laughs> so much caffeine, I think I'm seeing through time. Anyway. Yep. Um, Maybe you are. I could be. Now, here's a little tidbit about my ADHD brain. I yeah. like to listen to a song like on repeat. Like I will listen to one song oh, like, same. like 40 to 50 times in a row. And I know that sounds wild to, to many, I'm sure. But nope. that is just how I am. Um, the song for the past three days uh, has been – now, granted, I also will go away and I'll listen to some others and I'll come back. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Because um, I'm also – as well, now I have to make an aside to the aside. The aside to the aside is I'm in a real Fleetwood Mac rumors place. Yes. Uh, big, yes. big, big time. Um, but the past few days, I have been listening on repeat to Stutter by Elastica. I oh. – Love that song. And I feel like that is a song that would be on one of these compilations or or Connection by Elastica. I feel like those oh, songs were 100%. so big at that, you know, you know, the earlier. I'm not talking now 112, but maybe some <laughs> of the earlier ones, they may have made an appearance. Um, yeah. But part of it is, now you're going to love this. I'm putting this out there, and this is risky. This is risky. But I'm putting this out there with the caveat that there is no failure with this tri- this challenge that I have made for myself. There is no failure. It is just the journey. I have a birthday coming up very soon, dangerously soon, one, two and a half weeks, and that will be my 39th birthday. And I have decided that between now and then, and I got to get on this, I'm going to come up with a list of 40 things I want to do before I turn 40, because I turn 40 in February 2023. Oh, I think this is a great plan. And one of the things 
is now people people probably know this about me. You know this about me, obviously, but but maybe people don't. I am, you know, I'm a musical person. Am I great at playing the guitar? No. I mean, I've always dabbled. I'm I'm fine. I played when I was at the Second City. I can like, you know, I can play chords. I'm not like a proficient guitar player. Let's put it that way. Like sure. I can get by. I can get by. But that's about it. But I I only ever had an electric guitar when I was like, you know. I don't know, 14-ish, and I had bought it at, like, I bought it used, and it weighed 100 pounds, and it sounded like shit, and then I eventually sold it because it was just, like, not practical and whatever, and I've never had one since, and one of the things at the top of my list of 40 things before I turn 40 is I'm buying myself a fucking electric guitar, and I'm gonna, even if I only play alone in my home, I am going to, uh, Stutter by Elastica is the first song that I'm going to play on that electric guitar, so that's why I've been, like, in this, in this mode, so I feel like all of this between the two of us, again, feels very synchronistic. Oh, I love this a lot. Yeah. I pl- I took guitar lessons for six weeks and never went back. <laughs> uh, I just no. Uh, I I I played instruments in band, but I'm I like music. I just don't need to make it. Yeah, <laughs> because I do not have that gift. I will in say me. over the past few years, um, probably since twenty. 20- I mean, over. I mean, for always. I always pick up the guitar. I mean, that's always happened, always. But over the past few years, I, I you know, again, when I was younger, I I wrote very earnest songs in high school, very of earnest, you know, you know, very embarrassing songs for the most part. Then in it would have been two thousand and seven, I wrote an album in a month as a challenge, and I recorded it in my apartment in Toronto. I think one of those songs was okay out of like 12. I think there was one where I was like, that's an okay song. The rest of them I was like, eh. But anyway, um, then of course, again, I wrote song comedy songs all the time because those don't have to be musically like advanced as long as you can like, you know, make up a new melody and stuff like that. But a few years ago, I started writing songs again. Here I am being very vulnerable. I started writing songs again a few years ago um, in my living room. And that was like one of the things I would do when I would come home from work on Superstore, we would work long days or whatever. And every day for like a couple years, I would play guitar. I would play my guitar and sing because it was like one of those things to like, it's a different part of my brain. It's something that I really love, all of those kinds of things. And I remember um, one of my castmates asking me once, like, what do you do? Like, what do you do when you go home? And I'm like, oh, I play my guitar. And, and there was like a total silence. It was like, that's really inspiring. And then I was like, is it? And then I was like, I guess it could be. Um, <laughs> but uh, But again... I think that uh, I think that it, that it is it is it's uh, I'm doing myself a disservice because I've lived without an electric guitar now going on whatever twenty some years. It's time to welcome one back into my life and my home, and yeah. uh, to kick it up a notch. Oh, take that shit to eleven, right? Literally. Yes. Well, not literally. Oh, I don't I want to get a noise complaint, but you know. <laughs> of course, I think this is positive. You know. You know I love a list. Yeah. <laughs> you know that I love yeah. a list. I love a list that will give me a reason to check something off. <sighs> yeah. Like I get high just thinking <laughs> thinking about the joy that you're going to get from crossing things off. You probably won't. Not everybody feels the same way about lists, you maniac. But the point is. Yeah. <laughs> I just. Oof. Yeah. I love a list. 
I love a goal. Yes. I love like a, you know, I mean, 40 things in 52 weeks. Yeah. And some, and they're they're big and small, right? Like some of them are very small. Some of them are bigger. But something like the guitar is a great example, I think, because it's not something that's necessarily symbolic because I do play all the time and I I have for like, again, like, so it's not like it's like I'm buying it to like have it sit in a room. Like, I'm right. like, well, you have been playing consistently for the past few years. You should have it. You should play. You should, Why not? Like, yes. you're playing an acoustic guitar. You want to play some rock and roll. Then get yourself a goddamn uh, uh, axe to, 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 to wail on. I could not find it more perfect that around the point in time that you're like, I want to start dressing like Gwen Stefani, that you're like, and I need a guitar. And guess what else? I yeah. thought to myself, and this is, again, I'm being very vulnerable here, dear, dear listeners, so welcome. But I did have this thought recently, and it was it was not connected to Sid and Nancy, but now I'm realizing how perfectly, again, synchronistic it is for this episode. I did have this thought where I was like, is there anything more truly the spirit of punk rock than a woman turning 40, re-embracing writing songs about, <laughs> about failed relationships? And love, and uh, and I don't. I think truly, I don't think there's anything more punk rock than uh, someone who is again pushing forty, being like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reembark on uh, on experimenting with music and writing music. And I think that that is, uh, you know, if nothing else, it's good for the spirit, good for your personal yes. vibrations. Oh, I think this is overall very positive. Come on. One of the other things on the list: try a spray tan. <laughs> Big and small. Big, big and, and small. small. Big and small. Um, big and small. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, so you're saying you've never done a spray tan? No, I have had body makeup on before, which is essentially the same thing. But again, it's like a single use. And right. my God, you, I, it's, it's, it's something. I always love the look of it. I'm like, oh my God, like yeah. I look so like, you know, defined and, and lithe um, and healthy. Sure. Um so yeah, maybe that's, yeah, who knows? Again, yeah, we'll see. I would like to point out that I was not saying that because I've ever had one. I'd like to believe that our listeners realize that right away that, oh, there's no way she has. No, no, there's no way. There's no way she has. Also, will I ever get in a tanning bed? The answer is hell no. I've seen one too many scary movies. Yep. So yep. the no. answer is no. No, I won't be doing that No, either. thank Again, you. The spray tan doesn't require me facing my claustrophobia fears. And make it be known. Right. 40 before you're 40, not about facing fears. No. 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 This is just about 40 things to accomplish. Again, checking the goals. Checking I'm the list. say it. If... If I were to do a spray tan, which I'm not, Mm -hmm. because again, your list, not mine. Make Um, appointment for two. Yep. (laughs) It would exactly, exactly be Ross getting one on Friends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did also recently buy some. For certain, like, you turn, and then he was like, I'm supposed to what? And he had, like, four settings all on one side or something. It's, the point is, God, is there any show more referenceable uh then friends probably not yeah probably well, not i did also buy some pleather pants recently so we're both channeling ross that's let's just call it like it is uh, 
listen, ladies and gentlemen, uh, people of all kinds, uh, we're going to talk about Sid and Nancy on this episode of the show. If you're not familiar, don't worry. We're going to tell you right now a little bit of backstory. During the punk rock explosion of the 1970s, the Sex Pistols were ahead of the game. They were loud and angry and tapped into something that the British youth had been longing for. And despite being in one of the most notorious bands in punk music, bassist Sid Vicious is most remembered for being arrested for the murder of his girlfriend, Nacy Spungen. But when Sid died months later, police stopped investigating Nancy's case. So what happened to Nancy Spungen? Was she killed by the love of her life during a drug-fueled haze? Was it a robbery gone wrong? Or was Nancy involved and it wasn't really a murder at all? Christy Oxborough investigates. (laughs) I was genuinely going to add that and then I forgot. Well, because I don't retain anymore it's becoming almost terrifying like i'm bordering on make a doctor's appointment level about it so am i trust i took a basket of laundry downstairs the other day with obviously the intention of putting it in my washer and then in the dryer later on but i walked with it went right into my storage room and then stood there and went what am i doing why am I in here? And then I turned around and left. It was a horrifying moment. I also, the other day, caught myself. I just walked a complete circle. Like, <laughs> it was in my room. I just turned a complete circle. And then sat there and went, oh, shit, what was that for? <laughs> like, it was, uh, I want to say, maybe I'm not sleeping. I don't know. I, this year, have forced myself to go to bed earlier than I used to. But it doesn't make me any less frantic. I was just going to say, but it doesn't seem like it's helping. <laughs> I don't believe it's working yet. I don't God, believe I it's working. I just over a can. <laughs> Look, again, we're both two women getting by. Getting by. Oh. So we are going to start off the top with a quick disclaimer. Yep. For those who may not be familiar with Sid and Nancy, the topics of drug use and addiction will be coming up a lot through this story, as well as abuse, self-mutilation, and suicide. We will, of course, do our best to tread lightly, but for those who may need it, please consider this to be your overall trigger warning. So today's episode involves the Sex Pistols, a band that many say were the true originators of punk music. Journalist Legs McNeil said that, quote, punk was supposed to piss off everybody and make people think. Shout out to my friend Matt Gorley for gifting me McNeil's book years ago. It was a joy to reread specifically uh, as part of my research for this. Uh, And as an inside joke, I'm just going to he's never going to hear this. But as an inside joke, I'm just going to say, Matthew. No one's going to get that, but. The two guys who are not listening to this podcast. It's fine. It's fine. Maybe this is how we find out that they do listen. (laughs) This could be how we find out. Uh, No, I also realized that, uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, my husband will get it. Okay, great. (laughs) So that was for not for not. So the Sex Pistols came out at the beginning of the British punk rock explosion and completely embodied the punk rock fashion at its height in London. According to the Sex Pistols website, They were, quote, No one had their attitude, balls, or honesty. They were inspired by poverty and anger. 
Their music involved simple chords that were played fast and raw. Some have claimed that the Ramones made their London debut on July 4th, 1976, that the Sex Pistols not only went to that show, but then asked them how to make a band. That is not true. On that same night that the Ramones were in London, the Sex Pistols were playing a show in Sheffield, which is about 164 miles or 264 kilometers away. And not only that, they had been playing regularly for about eight months at that point. So no, they didn't start because of the Ramones. The Sex Pistols originated back in 1972 when school friends Paul Cook and Steve Jones formed a band called The Strand, which would later become The Swankers. Over the years, various friends would join the group and leave, including Jim Mackin, Stephen Hayes, Del Nunes, Nunez, and Wally Nightingale. In 1974, Glenn Matlock joined the band as bassist, and in 1975, the band added frontman John Lydon, better known as Johnny Rotten. The addition of Rotten took the band, now known as the Sex Pistols, to a whole new level, with Rotten writing the lyrics and Jones and or Matlock writing the music. In November 1975, the band made their stage debut at a dance at St. Martin's School of Art. A couple of songs into their performance, someone pulled the plug on all their equipment. But February 1976, the band was playing regular Tuesday night gigs at the 100 Club in London, which is impressive since they were banned from most other places. <laughs> 100 Club side note. The club, which is located at 100 Oxford Street, has been hosting live music since October 24, 1942. In the 70s, the club became associated with punk rock and was the first to host the first international punk festival, September 20, 1976. The festival, known as the 100 Club Punk Special, was a two-day event that included such bands as Sex Pistols, The Clash, Buzzcocks, and The Damned. So fans agreed that the Sex Pistols were the stars of the festival, and it was this performance that led to the Pistols being signed by EMI on October 8, 1976. Their first single, Anarchy in the UK, released November 26, 1976. EMI was contacted by British television to request an appearance by the band Queen on a daytime show called Today. Since Queen was unavailable, EMI decided, let's send the Sex Pistols instead. They can promote their new single. So the Pistols made their television debut on December 1st, 1976. Unfortunately, the band proceeded to drop a series of F-bombs during their live performance, which caused almost every date from their upcoming tour to be cancelled. Then in January 1977, their label dropped them. Oh boy, what it's a also, shocker. If, if you're expecting Queen, <laughs> it's something else to get uh, the Sex Pistols. Like That's a completely different sound and a lot. A I mean, lot I'm louder also, for the daytime crowd. Yeah, I'm also just going to say very quickly, like, um, now I'm not suggesting that I know the, the origins of the title Sex Pistols, but I sure. would assume that uh, one would, uh, could, could speculate that a sex sure. pistol would be a man's genital, a penis. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I, love, I love that you clarified like I didn't know. 
Yeah. <laughs> right? So it's like, again, I'm just like, I'm yeah. surprised that the morning show was like, yeah, let them come on. That seems like a wholesome name. Like, <laughs> it, it feels like, yeah, it was a choice. A choice got made that day. Yeah. And I <laughs> I don't know how many people were were jazzed about it. I just wish I could have been there to see people seeing it for the first time with me knowing what to expect and them not knowing what to expect. Of course. That would have given me a little joy for well, reasons I don't get know. Get ready for the time travel. <laughs> That's, I'll put it on the on, list. It's going on the list. I'd like to be in the audience on December 1st, 1976 at the Today Show. <laughs> okay. Not the Today Show. Oh, God, that'll end up getting me in New York somewhere. Oh, yeah. The, you know what? We know what we're talking yep. about. Okay, I'm just putting it under spray tans for two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how have I not considered the idea of a list for the hug smugglers? Oof, that feels... See, if the band was called the Hug Smugglers, at least you'd be like, oh, okay. That if, feels if harmless. If the Hug Smugglers dropped F-bombs, that would be a surprise. The Sex Pistols dropping F- dropping F-bombs, yeah. I just don't think is a huge leap. Anyway, continue. Agreed. <laughs> so EMI dropped them, but they did keep their word and paid out the contract in full, which at the time was 40,000 British pounds, which in 2022 is equivalent to 357,000 British pounds, or 488,000 US dollars. So not bad for a contract that you're in for like a month. Yeah. Uh, but despite the money, the lack of a label just further added to the already growing tensions within the group. An ongoing feud between Rotten and bassist Matlock came to a head, with Matlock feeling like he just wasn't being given an equal say in the band, and that he didn't like the direction they were headed. So in February 1977, Matlock left the band. If you think every time I say that name, I don't picture an elderly lawyer... You're dead wrong. I'm showing my age. Listen, same. So with the band in need of a bassist, Johnny Rotten suggested his friend John Ritchie, one of the Sex Pistols' earliest fans, as a replacement. And in February 1977, Ritchie joined the Sex Pistols on stage for the first time under the stage name Sid Vicious. Fan side note, Sex Pistols' superfans were known as the Bromley Contingent. They were so dedicated that they traveled with the band to almost every single show. Some of the most famous members of the Bromley contingent were Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees and Billy Idol. Huh. Yeah. But before we get too much further into the Sex Pistols, we're going to focus for a moment on Sid Vicious. John Simon Ritchie was born May 10th, 1957, in Lewisham, England. His father, John, was a guardsman at Buckingham Palace and a part-time jazz musician. I believe he played the trombone. His mother, Anne, dropped out of high school to join the Royal Air Force. Soon after Ritchie's birth, he and his mother moved to Ibiza. John was meant to join them, but instead just chose to abandon his family. Oh, boy. Anne later married a man named Christopher Beverly in Spain in 1965 before the new family moved to Kent. Unfortunately, Christopher died six months later from kidney failure. Back on their own, Anne and her son moved around a lot, living in Tunbridge Wells, Hackney, and Clevedon, Somerset. In 1973, while attending Hackney Technical College, Richie met John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, 
The two became close friends, busking in the street for money. Rotten said that Richie would play the tambourine, and they'd often do covers of Alice Cooper. In 1976, Richie started to dabble in music. He played drums for Susie and the Banshees at their first gig, which just so happened to be the 100 Club Punk Special. While at the festival, Richie threw a glass at Dave Vanyan, the lead singer for The Damned, over some sort of personal grudge. The glass missed Vanyan, but hit a pillar and partially blinded a girl in one eye. Oh my god! Yeah, it only goes down (laughs) from here. This is like, that's like Begbie from Trainspotting vibes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I get that. Richie, who was both drunk and high at the time, was arrested and sent to the Ashford Remand Center. After his release, he became the drummer for The Flowers of Romance. Then in February 1977, when Glenn Matlock left the Sex Pistols, Johnny Rotten suggested Richie since he had been to nearly every one of their shows. Richie joined the band as their new bassist under the name Sid Vicious, a name created by Johnny Rotten. Apparently, Rotten had a hamster named Sid, who was a bit of a biter. (laughs) So he would say Sid was so vicious, and somehow that became Richie's new stage name. The hamster was apparently named after Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd. Huh. The thing about Sid joining the Sex Pistols... At the time, he had never played bass before. (laughs) Friends later said one night he just sat down with a Ramones album, listening to it over and over and over again, and by the next morning, he could at least somewhat play the bass. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Passion. Sex Pistols manager Malcolm Malcolm McLaren once said, quote, If Johnny Rotten is the voice of punk, then Vicious is the attitude. So it seemed that the band might be finally finding that winning combination they were looking for. Shortly after Sid joined the band, they were signed to A&M Records. However, they were dropped six days later. Oh. But just like last time, the label honored the contract in full and shelled out £75,000, which in 2022 is equivalent to 496,000 British pounds or 679,000 US dollars. The Sex Pistols were then signed by Virgin Records in May 1977, who released their next single, God Save the Queen, which peaked at number two on the charts, despite the fact that it outsold the number one hit, The first cut is the deepest by Rod Stewart. The Sex Pistols have always believed they were denied the number one spot simply because they were were the first who dared to push back against the monarchy. And honestly, I've got to say, it takes a lot of balls to release a song talking shit about the Queen in 1977, which was the 25th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth II's reign, also known as her Jubilee, which is so fun to say, by the way. (laughs) Next time I have a party, I'm calling it a jubilee. Fun fact, February 6th, 2022 marks the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which is the 70th anniversary of her accession to the throne. Wow! Yeah! Uh, The band also planned to hold a record release party on June 15th aboard a yacht aptly named Queen Elizabeth. The boat was boarded by police immediately, and they were forced to dock. Over the next few months, members of the band were physically attacked, and the entire band was banned from playing in England. Although they tried to work around that by performing throughout the UK under the names Tax Exiles and Spots. 
(laughs) In August 1977, they even did a brief tour through Scandinavia. But despite the pushback that the band received from the public, they released the singles Pretty Vacant and Holidays in the Sun on July 2nd and October 15th, respectively. And on October 28th, 1977, the Sex Pistols released their first and only album, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Thanks to more than 125,000 pre-orders, the album immediately charted at number one in Britain. In the United States, the album peaked on Billboard at number 107. Album side note, Sid Vicious did not play on the album. Guitarist Steve Jones played bass in the studio as Sid was in the hospital for hepatitis, (sighs) which they believe was caused by his intravenous drug use. Oh, dear. Sid did, however, play partially on the song Bodies. Despite only releasing a single album, the Sex Pistols made their mark on the world. Their music went on to inspire groups such as Social Distortion, Nirvana, Joy Division, Green Day, The Smiths, Buzzcocks, and The Clash. NoFX bassist Michael John Burkett, a.k.a. Fat Mike, said that the Sex Pistols album changed his life. Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain once said, quote, The Pistols album has the best production of any rock record I've ever heard. It's totally in your face and compressed. All the hype the Sex Pistols had was totally deserved. According to Encyclopedia.com, the Pistols, quote, Radical style of playing, the lyrical content of their songs, their attitude, their style of dress, and their behavior succeeded in changing the way rock was played. It brought a new and refreshing relationship to rock's audiences and its performers. Although sometimes the relationship with their audience was less positive. There was a British journalist named Nick Kent. Apparently, Kent used to rehearse with the band back before Johnny Rotten joined them. So Kent believed he was the rightful lead singer of the band. Um, And so he would often badmouth Johnny Rotten to the press. And one night when he showed up at a Sex Pistols show, Sid Vicious pulled out a bike chain from his pocket and hit Kent in the head a couple of times. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Sid never stopped being impulsive. Like when he met a woman and became instantly devoted to her, Uh, In March 1977, a rock groupie named Nancy Spungen was following Jerry Nolan and Johnny Thunders of the Heartbreakers when she first met the Sex Pistols. The band claims that Nancy made a move for Johnny Rotten first, and when he turned her down, she set her sights on Sid. Oh boy. Nancy was seen by others as obnoxious and unlikable. Other groupies didn't like her, but the musicians did. Nancy's reputation preceded her as she was known for getting any drugs that the bands were looking for. The band said that Sid went from a fun-loving, intelligent kid to a, quote, belligerent junkie desperately trying to live up to the name Vicious. The band, of course, blames Nancy and the heroine for the change, but according to the Sex Pistols website, Sid had a history with drugs prior to him meeting Nancy. Uh, However... They say that his drug problems went to a whole new level after her. Hashtag justice for Nancy side note. Yes. I just want to take a moment to talk about Sid's mother, Anne Beverly. I have seen so many comments from people online, in articles, in documentaries, etc. 
who all believe that Nancy was the one who introduced Sid to drugs. And while I'm not suggesting his drug use didn't increase after Nancy entered his life, I just want to clarify that Nancy was not the one who corrupted the innocent boy according to the usual narrative of their story. If you're looking for the woman who introduced Sid to drugs, you need to look at his mother. While Sid and his mother Anne were living in Spain prior to her second marriage, Anne allegedly used her son, who was a toddler at the time, as a drug mule, hiding hash in his pants on trips back to England. According to Johnny Rotten, Anne never cared about Sid until he became famous, and that Anne was known to be addicted to heroin and opiates. When Sid was a teenager, Anne gave him a bag of heroin and a couple of syringes one year for his birthday. Rotten said that he was horrified, but that Sid told him his mom meant well because she knew heroin helps him relax. Again, I only point these things out because I've seen so many posts online that claim that Nancy was the one that got Sid into drugs, and that simply isn't true. I'm just tired of seeing Nancy be vilified and blamed for all of Sid's issues. Was Nancy a saint? No. But neither was Sid before he met her. End of rant. I love it. Again, I did see. There was one in particular. I'm sure he was a child. But, like, his post was, like, how Sid was this god and how Nancy destroyed him and if it wasn't for her. And it's, like, he wasn't a sweet, innocent boy and she came in and destroyed him. It's, like, he was hitting people in the face with bike chains. He was, you know, trying to throw glasses at people's heads. He was already doing things before he met her. People just really love to blame women for corrupting men, which is laughable. Yeah. Oh, 100%. That one one also um, was like, oh, and her mother wrote a book about her and kept going on about how sweet her daughter was. And to that I say, you didn't read the book Mm. because I did and – I I try to find something nice to say about every victim that we speak about. And I read her mother's book and I still had to go find something nice oh, wow. to say about her. Uh, we will get into it yeah. later, but there's there's just a lot of stuff. So again, I'm not saying she's innocent in all of this. I'm just saying she isn't the bad as bad she isn't as bad as people had made her out to be. She's not great, but... <laughs> yeah. No, I know. know what you mean. I know what you Again, mean. Again, it takes two, and, you know, he was definitely not innocent in any of these. Yes. So, Sid Vicious meets Nancy Spungen, and immediately they become inseparable. Sid once described... was Sid was once described as Nancy's knight in rusty armor. He did everything she asked. The problem was the rest of the Sex Pistols despised Nancy. Mm. They called her a lowlife and a troublemaker and said, and this is a direct quote, uh, it's a lot, um, quote, she was very, 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 very bad influence on people who were already a mess. Oof. And again, to that I say, so you admit that he was a mess. Right. 
not the point. They even started calling her Nauseating Nancy. Oh, wow. Which, that seems nice. Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren especially disliked Nancy, saying that she was disruptive and that she was the source of Sid's drug problems, which we pointed out she wasn't. Mm-hmm. McLaren once admitted he tried to have Nancy kidnapped and flown back to New York as he believed that she was destroying their band. But since the couple wouldn't leave each other's sides, he had to, dis- he had to scrap his abduction plan. But again, Nancy became the Yoko Ono with everyone saying she tore the band apart. Mm-hmm. But from my understanding, there was already infighting long before Nancy showed up. Case in point, Glenn Matlock's exit. Yeah, great point. How he even got there. Yeah, yeah. 100%. So October 1977, the group signed with Warner Brothers in the United States and began preparation for their first and only American tour in January 1978. The plan was to avoid the bigger cities and to instead play a series of dates in the Deep South at various country and Western venues. Unfortunately, the timing was a bit off. While the punk rock movement was huge in London at the time, it hadn't quite made its way over to America yet. In 1978, disco was dominant in America, so when the Sex Pistols arrived... No one was ready for them. And since the majority of the band disliked Nancy, they actually banned her from joining them on tour. Sid was so angry about it that during a show in Dallas, he hit a fan in the head with his bass. Wow. Yep. Yep. Uh, The Sex Pistols arrived in New York on January 4th, 1978, where they were meant to perform on Saturday Night Live. For reasons I'm unsure of, their appearance was canceled at the last minute, and they were replaced with Elvis Costello and the Attractions. The band started their tour in Atlanta on January 5th, followed by shows in Memphis, San Antonio, Baton Rouge, Dallas, and Tulsa. The tour ended with three nights at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco on January 14th. The pressure of touring, combined with Sid's now serious drug problem, constant band squabbles, and a manager who only saw the band as dollar signs, all came to a head at that final show in San Francisco. Sid was messed up on drugs, Johnny Rotten had the flu to the point where his voice kept giving out, and the others were just sick of the drama. They closed the show with a cover of No Fun by the Stooges, and at the end, Johnny Rotten asks the crowd, quote, Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Then he drops the mic and walks off stage. Wow. It would be the last time the Sex Pistols would perform together until 1996. Reunion side note. The original band reunited in 1996 for a tour playing as many gigs as they did throughout the 70s. They were even invited to play Top of the Pops even though the show had banned them in the 1970s. The band would also reunite in 2002 and 2007. So on January 20th, 1978, Sid boards a flight to London. But when the flight stops in New York, Sid has to be carried off the plane as he passed out mid-flight. It was found that Sid had overdosed, so he was taken to a hospital in Queens. Oh dear. After Sid was discharged, he flew home to London, where he traveled with Nancy to Paris. The band's manager, Malcolm McLaren, was filming a mockumentary called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, but 
reunited with his love, Sid often refused to partake in the filming, instead choosing to stay in their hotel room and get high. Manager drama side note. In the movie, Johnny Rotten was played by an actor as he refused to participate. The soundtrack has some vocals by Rotten, but most of the vocals were done by manager Malcolm McLaren. (laughs) Oh my god. Yep. McLaren, who in the movie claims that he was the one who created the Sex Pistols, uh, it took a very lengthy court battle for the remaining members of the band to take back control of their own band. In 2000, they were finally able to tell the true story of their band's origins in the documentary The Filth and the Fury. After the disastrous tour, Sid, Jones, and Cook continued to release singles under the Sex Pistols' name, while Rotten left the group and formed the new group Public Image Limited, or PIL. On August 24, 1978, Sid and Nancy moved into the Chelsea Hotel in New York. During their first week at the Chelsea, Sid collapsed in the lobby. The couple decided to get off heroin and start using methadone. However, both soon relapsed and their drug use increased. Two weeks after visiting her family, Nancy was calling home looking for money. She called home in tears, saying she was having a problem with her kidneys and needed money. Her mother, Deborah, offered to pay a doctor directly. Then Sid snapped and said that Nancy's health comes first. Deborah should care about her own daughter's health. Sid demanded $3,000. And when Deborah refused, he said, quote, What kind of mother are you? How can you do this to your own fucking daughter? It turns out, of course, there was nothing wrong with Nancy's kidneys. They just needed the money. And of course they did. At this point, the Sex Pistols had broken up and Sid was trying to make a solo career happen. And Nancy was his new manager. Nancy tried to get Sid a recording contract, but there were no takers. Instead, she lined up three nights for Sid in mid-September at a New York nightclub called Max's Kansas City as well as another gig for late October at The Hive. Unfortunately, the crowds didn't respond as positively as they had hoped. So with Sid's musical career drying up and the couple's drug use increasing, to say that Sid and Nancy were spiraling was an understatement. One night, they fell asleep in bed with a lit cigarette, which set the mattress on fire. After that, the building manager moved them to room 100, so that they could be watched more closely. But through it all, the couple were completely devoted to one another. Sid wrote what he entitled, quote, What Makes Nancy So Great? It's a numbered list, which you know I appreciate. Yes! With 12 items on it. And for the most part, it's very lovely. Such as, number five, makes extremely interesting conversation. Number eight, has fab taste in clothes. And some of them, number nine in particular, leans a little more towards the vulgar. To say it without having to say it, let's just say it has something in common with a song by Cardi B and Megan the Stallion. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, yeah. I'm, I'm no prude. No, of course. Vulgar or not. 
The list is nothing but positives in which he calls her beautiful and smart and funny. And honestly, it's really, really lovely. But lovely or not, that doesn't mean the couple didn't have their problems. According to Nancy's mother, Deborah, Nancy told her that while they were living in London, Sid had beaten her up, broken her nose, and nearly torn off one of her ears. Oh my god! She originally told her mother that it was done by someone else, and then uh, later on she had then claimed it was done by Sid. We're, of course, just right. assuming we don't know. On October 8th, 1978, Nancy called her mother to say that Sid's abuse had started again. As she, he was very upset, he couldn't get work, and he was tired of getting hassled uh, anytime he went anywhere. Deborah also claims that during the same phone call, Nancy asked if she and Sid could get into the White Deer Run Detox Hospital. Deborah said she'd call the next day. So Deborah called Monday afternoon, but was told to call back later in the week, as the woman who worked admissions was away. But on Thursday, before Deborah had the chance to call the hospital, she received a call from a police lieutenant who told her that Nancy was dead and that Sid had been arrested. Wow. Man, oh man. So many thoughts, so many feelings. I, uh... I can't wait to continue to hear more, to dig in. I've already got lots of notes taken, and I can't wait to talk about it all. But let's take a quick break right now, get another drink, huff a little more incense, hit the can, (laughs) and we're going to be right back with more about Sid and Nancy on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Sid and Nancy. Uh, Before the break, uh, I was talking about huffing incense. I just want to go on the record as saying I don't recommend you do that in any way, shape, or form. Um, I am just a little uh, buzzed on caffeine. And the good news is is I've poured myself a water to try and bring myself down. Um, So, Christy... Also before the break, Nancy had just passed. What do you got for us next? Well, we're going to get into the deets on that. The deets. I don't know how old I am, but... The Lydia deets. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I myself am strange and unusual. Thank you. So, around 11 a.m. 
On October 12, 1978, the front desk at the Chelsea Hotel received a call from the police saying that someone had been seriously injured in room 100. A bellman arrived at the room to find Nancy bleeding profusely from a wound in her abdomen. Sid was found wandering the hallway, dazed. Allegedly, he was screaming that he had killed Nancy, which he also told the police at the beginning, but then he later recanted and said he had no memory of the night before. So Sid was not in the room when the hotel employee first arrived, but he was back in the room by the time the police showed up. Mm, okay. According to investigators, after consuming about 32 in all, the night before, Sid woke up around 10.50 a.m. and noticed that not only was Nancy not in bed beside him, sorry, and noticed that, I don't know why I put it that way, noticed that Nancy wasn't in bed beside him. And okay. then I bust into a very quick two and all side note. Thank you. Tuanol is the now discontinued brand name of a drug that was composed of, oh, heaven help me, equal parts secobarbital sodium and amobarbital sodium. It was introduced as a sedative in the late 1940s and was manufactured up until the late 1990s. It is said that Tuanol was a very popular drug choice for bands from the 1960s through 80s, musicians, who admitted to abusing to an all include Keith Richards, Anthony Kiedis, Aerosmith, Van Halen, and Jim Morrison. Hmm. This particular drug is mentioned in songs like Psychotherapy by the Ramones, New Sensations by Lou Reed, and The Old Main Drag by the Pogues. Shout out to the Pogues, because Love You Till the End is one of my favorite songs of all time. Yes. So Sid consumes an incredible number of pills and wakes up to find his bed empty. Nancy's mother, Deborah, claims she was told the bed was covered in blood, but I could find nowhere else to corroborate that. Mm. Sid said that he found Nancy in the bathroom, sitting on the floor, kind of under the sink. She was wearing matching black lace underwear and had a single stab wound to her abdomen. A 007 flip knife was found near Nancy's body. Murder weapon side note. This might be the most side notes I've ever done. I don't know. I like it. Uh, the weapon in question was said to be a knife that Nancy had purchased just two days prior. Steve Batters, known by his stage name as Stiv, lead singer for the band The Dead Boys, was given a 007 knife from Dee Dee Ramone. Now, Dee Dee Ramone was... Sid's hero. So once Sid heard the story, he immediately wanted one of those knives too. So Sid and Nancy went with friends to Times Square to buy a knife for Sid. The 007 knife was said to be fairly popular in the 70s as it was cheap, easy to find, and a good size for carrying. At its core, the 007 was a basic pocket knife with a long blade that opened with the flick of a wrist. So Nancy's found, and I should say, Sid wanted the knife. Nancy was the one who had the cash. So she technically bought the knife for right. him. So Nancy is found with this stab wound to her abdomen, and the medical examiner determined that Nancy bled out. She was just 20 years old. 20 to 20. zero? She was oh. 20. Yeah. Oh. According to police, Sid admitted to stabbing Nancy when they first arrived on scene, 
but they said that he was clearly so out of it that it would be impossible to use that as an actual confession. But Sid was arrested for the murder of Nancy Spungen. It is said it took four men to hold him down as he was being led away. Sid was sent to Rikers Island and put in their drug detox ward, but soon he was released on $50,000 bail. On October 23rd, Sid tried to cut his wrists with a broken light bulb. He was sent to the Bellevue Hospital, where he tried to jump out a window saying, quote, I want to be with my Nancy. Oh. Sid was released from Bellevue two weeks later. In late November, Sid pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder at a preliminary hearing. And I know what some of you are thinking. Why wasn't he being charged with first-degree murder? Apparently, in New York, first-degree murder in the 1970s only applied if the victim was a police officer. New York, huh. New York penal law side note. Hmm. Currently, from what I've read, so please don't come for me if this is wrong, but currently in New York, first-degree murder only applies if the victim was a cop, a prison guard, firefighter, any sort of first responder, doctor, paramedic, etc. If the person was a witness to a crime and you're, like, trying to get rid of them, or if the the death occurred during the commission of another felony, such as kidnapping or rape. The murder can be also be considered first-degree murder if the defendant had a previous charge of second-degree murder or if the defendant was found to have acted, quote, under the influence of extreme emotional disturbance for which there was no reasonable explanation or excuse. Hmm. In an interview with Bernard Clark in December 1978, Sid said that his object in life was to have fun. And when asked about Nancy's death, Sid responded, quote, It was meant to happen. Nancy always said she'd die before she was 21. On December 7th, Sid goes to the Manhattan disco Hurrahs, where he ended up uh, hitting Patty Smith's brother Todd across the head with a beer bottle. Sid allegedly pinched Todd's girlfriend, Tara, so Todd responded verbally, and Sid responded by hitting Todd with a broken Heineken bottle. Todd was carried out of the club and was taken to a hospital where he received some stitches. Sid was arrested the next morning, and on December 9th, his bail was revoked, and he was sent back to Rikers Island. Eileen Polk, a photographer and friend of Sid's, claimed that Sid's mother, Anne, used to sneak heroin into Rikers when she would visit. It's believed this only happened a few times as Sid was allegedly clean when he was released 55 days later. Sid was bailed out again, this time with money allegedly raised by Malcolm McLaren, and on February 1st, 1979, Sid was released from Rikers. Sid and his friends decided to celebrate his release by having a party at Michelle Robinson's Greenwich Village apartment, who was Michelle Robinson? Oh, no big deal. She was just Sid's new girlfriend, who he'd been seeing since November. So Nancy dies in October, yep. and he starts seeing this other woman in November. Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. Now I know that everyone grieves in a different way. But I was shocked to hear that Sid started seeing someone so soon after Nancy's death, especially when you hear how much he loved her and how devoted he was to her. 
After Nancy's death, Sid wrote some letters to Nancy's mother, Deborah, saying some really beautiful things, such as, quote, Nancy was a very special person, too beautiful for this world. I feel so privileged to have loved her and been loved by her. Another one, quote, The nights are the worst. I used to hold Nancy close to me all night so she wouldn't have nightmares, and I just can't sleep without my beautiful baby in my arms. So warm and gentle and vulnerable, no one should expect me to live without her. She was a part of me, my heart. Again, it's just wild to me that feeling that deeply for someone, he started seeing someone else a few weeks later. And I say this with no shade meant to Michelle, but I assume that Sid just couldn't be alone. And from my understanding, Michelle had recently lost her boyfriend to an overdose, so it's possible that they were just kind of comforting each other in a shared grief. Again, I'm not judging. I was just taken aback by the news. That's all. Mm -hmm. So on the evening of February 1st, the small group had spaghetti and a few beers Now, this is where things get complicated. Some say that British photographer Pete Gravel brought heroin and quaaludes to Sid that night. Others claim that Sid's mom, Anne Beverly, gave Sid $100 to score some dope around midnight. Which is the truth? I don't know. All I know is Sid had a lot, a lot of heroin in his system. Journalist Alan G. Parker claimed that Anne administered a fatal dose of heroin to her son because Sid was afraid of the trial and the idea of going back to prison. In 2018, Parker admitted he was lying, which pisses me off. Lying for the sake of a story isn't cute, Alan. No. Nobody needs it. Just give the facts. Yep. I love that I felt the need to call him by his first name. He knows what I he did. I did, too. On the morning of February 2nd at 7 a.m., Anne, who spent the night on the couch, went to wake her son for a court appointment. When she went into the bedroom, she found Sid was dead. Michelle was sleeping beside him. Sid had died in his sleep. Police allegedly found a spoon and a syringe near Sid's body. His death was ruled an accidental overdose. Sid was only 21 years old. Oof. Less than four weeks after Sid's death, Malcolm McLaren released the soundtrack for the great rock and roll swindle, which featured Sid's solo cover of Frank's, Frank Sinatra's My Way. And then on December 15, 1979, McLaren released Sid Sings, a compilation of live recordings from Sid's brief solo career. In 2006, Sid, along with the four original members of the Sex Pistols, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, although the rest of the band refused to attend. Mm. After Sid's death, uh, since there could no longer be a trial, the police just decided that Nancy's murder was solved. So they just decided, that's it. I guess we're done. But we here at True Crime and Cocktails don't ever look at just one theory. We look at them all. Yes. So theory number one. We're just going to get right to it. Yep. Sid murdered Nancy. Now, when police first arrived at the Chelsea Hotel, Sid allegedly told them, quote, I killed her. I can't live without her. She must have fallen on the knife. But was Sid really capable of murdering the love of his life? The woman that one friend said Sid loved more than music? 
Well, according to Nancy's mother and friends of the couple, Sid had been both physically and verbally abusive to Nancy on more than one occasion. A friend who stayed out with Sid and Nancy until 4 a.m. on the night of Nancy's death claimed that Nancy begged him to go to them to go with them to the hotel because Sid was quote acting strange. The friend also claimed that Sid had held a knife to Nancy's throat. The friend also alleged that Sid would often beat Nancy with a guitar. Jesus. So if these people are correct, then we know that Sid is certainly capable of an intense level of anger towards Nancy. But he had so many drugs in his system that some have suggested that maybe he did stab her, but he was out of it and didn't realize what he was doing. So it's possible that Sid did it out of anger, but it's also possible that maybe it was just specifically an accident. Right. So theory number two is that someone other than Sid killed Nancy while Sid was passed out. Elliot Kidd, lead singer for The Demons, took a couple of girls over the Chelsea Hotel to see Sid and Nancy. Kidd said that he arrived at 4 a.m., and said that Nancy was the one who answered the door when they arrived. He said that there were about 8 to 12 people there, including a musician who went by the name Neon Leon. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, he made a choice. And I don't hate it, you know? Uh, Kid said that everyone was stoned, and that Sid consumed a handful of two-and-alls and passed out. Kid didn't stay long as the room was small and crowded and lacked a place to sit. Neon Leon said that he was one of the last to leave room 100, but that the two-and-all dealer stayed behind. No one knew his name, just that he lived in Hell's Kitchen. Well, they might not have known the dealer's name, but this bitch does. Yes, she does! The dealer went by the name... Rockets, Red Glare. Oh, so a patriot. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. Uh, Which brings us to a Rockets, Red Glare. Side note. That was... was I loved it. (laughs) It was great. So Rockets' real name was Michael Mora, and he was born May 1949. Mora was an actor and a stand-up comedian who appeared in over 30 films in the 80s and 90s. You may remember him best from the movie Big as the guy who gave Tom Hanks the keys to his first place. Oh, of course. Now, Mora's childhood was traumatic at best. His mother was a 15-year-old named Agnes who was addicted to heroin at the time of Mora's birth. So it was said that doctors added methadone to his baby formula. Mm. His father was part of the Italian-American mob scene and ended up being deported to Italy. Soon after, Agnes started to date a former boxer who became abusive and ultimately killed her. Wow. Yeah. Shortly after his mother's death, Mora changed his name to Rocket's Red Glare. In the late 1970s, he became a permanent fixture in the punk and porno film scenes. He worked as a bouncer and as a roadie for the band The Hassles, which were a rock group that featured a young Billy Joel. Ah. Mora also worked as a bodyguard and drug supplier for Sid Vicious. 
On the night of Nancy's murder, it was said that Mora delivered 40 pills to their room. Michael Mora died May 28, 2001, from a combination of cirrhosis, liver failure, kidney failure, and hep C. Mora was once quoted as saying, quote, Anything I ever liked, I always did to excess. Phil Strongman, author of the book Pretty Vacant, A History of Punk, believes that Mora noticed that Sid was out of it, so he started to go through their stuff and found the drawer where the couple kept their cash. Because, of course, no banks. They were all about cash. Right. Strongman believes that Nancy caught Mora in the act and that she attacked him and that Mora stabbed her, took the rest of the money, and left. It should be worth noting that the drawer was open and empty when police arrived. Interesting. Strongman even claims that in January 1979, just three months after Nancy's death, that people at the club CBGB's overheard Mora confessing to both the robbery and the murder, and that he showed off some blood-stained money as his proof. And while Mora would claim to friends and acquaintances that he killed Nancy, he would always deny any involvement when asked by the media. Sid told Elliot Kidd that when he woke up and found Nancy in the bathroom, that he noticed that the drawer where they kept their money was open and the money was gone. Elliot said that if Nancy had been in the bathroom and came out to find a drug dealer taking their money, she would have gone after the guy because, quote, Nancy didn't take shit from anybody. And maybe that's exactly what happened. Maybe Nancy caught someone stealing from them and she was stabbed as they fled the scene. It's believed that because Sid was passed out, that whoever might have done it, assuming maybe it was Rockets, he probably assumed that Sid was dead, so he probably thought he was leaving two dead bodies behind. But again, by assuming that Rockets was the last person there, we're taking Neon Leon's word that he was the last person at the scene. Maybe Leon was the last person at the scene. Money can be a pretty big motive, especially when everyone is inebriated or high in some sort of way. Leon died in 1998. So if any of these people are responsible, we will not see justice yeah. in any way. Then we have theory number three, which suggests that Nancy stabbed herself, whether as a suicide attempt or to seek attention. But to better understand this theory, we need to look into Nancy's background. So... We're uh, in for a journey. We're going back in time. Oh, I like that a lot. I Thank like you. that a lot. Nancy Laura Spungen was born February 27th, 1958 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her parents, Deborah and Frank Spungen, said the birth was traumatic as not only was Nancy born cyanotic with the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck, but she was also jaundiced from ABO incompatibility. Mm. Medical side note. According to kidshealth.org, ABO incompatibility occurs when the mother's blood type is O and the baby's blood type is A or B. The mother's immune system can react and make antibodies against the baby's red blood cells, and this can lead to jaundice as uh, one of the issues. 
As an infant, Nancy cried almost constantly. After a battery of tests were run, doctors believed that the crying was caused by her traumatic birth. It got to the point where a doctor prescribed phenobarbital, a drug that is used to prevent seizures, but is also used short-term as a sedative. Whoa. Nancy had a fairly normal childhood until six weeks into the first grade when Nancy was moved to a class for intellectually gifted students. By the end of grade two, Nancy was already completing work at a fourth and fifth grade level. And by the end of the year, she was able to bypass grade three, move straight into grade four. And while Nancy was able to adapt to the work, she struggled socially. According to Nancy's mother, Nancy took out her frustrations on her younger siblings by bullying and manipulating them. She was apparently the harshest towards her sister, Susie. Susie, side note! <laughs> Susie, who goes by Susan Spongen these days, is an author, celebrated chef, food stylist, and recipe developer. She was the founding food editor and editorial director for food at Martha Stewart Living, from its launch in 1999 through to 2003. Susan has also worked as a culinary consultant and food stylist for such films as Julie and Julia, Labor Day, and Eat, Pray, Love. Wow. I've still never seen Eat, Pray, Love. Oh. Should I? Well, yeah, yes. I Here's the thing. I uh, Look, I go back and I watch the love section all yeah. the time. All the time. Interesting. I like the movie as a whole, but I, I'll go back to that. You know why? Well, this is a spoiler, though. I've already said too much. I shouldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a real journey we just went It was on. Javier Bardem. You know that. Oh. Love. Okay, let me yeah. just tell you one line. Of course. He says, you don't need a man. You need a champion. Oh, that's hot. Yeah. I, I, I mean, come on. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, my God. Is one of the things on your list of 40 to do an Eat, Pray, Love? It is now. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Now, there were always incidents when Nancy's siblings would try to bring a friend to the house. She would often convince Susie and her friends to play board games, and then Nancy would tell the friend how they could win just so that it would upset her sister. Okay. And one time when her brother David had a friend over to play with slot cars, Nancy threw one of the cars at the wall, smashing it. Hmm. I'm sure that all of the psychologist hats can see that Nancy was clearly jealous of her siblings for having the friendships that she so desperately craved. Her parents decided to move the children to the suburbs, hoping that a new school system and classmates would help calm Nancy's angry ways. Nancy's love of music started the first moment that she heard the soundtrack to Hair. Ah. She loved it so much that she later named her cat Aquarius. Nancy's love of music grew, and every weekend she would go to the record store and spend every cent of her allowance. She liked the Beatles, Rolling Stones, The Doors, Led Zeppelin, and Jefferson Airplane. Her parents bought her a guitar but Nancy lost interest in it after a few weeks. As a child, Nancy was a voracious reader. At the age of 10, again, 10 years old, some of her favorites were Sylvia Plath, J.D. Salinger, and Kurt Vonnegut. 
She read the New York Times, especially to keep herself up to date on the Vietnam War. And when a cousin got drafted, Nancy insisted that the family sneak him into Canada. Which is kind of adorable. It's adorable. And I'll tell you this, I I will sneak you into this country. If I have to drive to your country and, you know, at the border, put you under a blanket, I'd have to do better than that. (laughs) I'd have to get like the stow and go seats and like somehow put you in there. I don't know. I'd figure it out. I'd figure it out. Thank you. You're not getting drafted. (laughs) That's my point. Not getting drafted. Uh, Nancy always had a fire in her soul. One time after her mother brought home a box of saran wrap, Nancy lost her mind. She explained to her mother that saran was made by Dow Chemical, who were involved in the manufacturing of napalm. Nancy grabbed a jar of cookies and her siblings told her mother they would remain outside until the saran wrap left the house. When the children were called inside for dinner, the youngest two immediately went in. Nancy called them sellouts and establishment pigs. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Again, she was 10. (laughs) I, uh, the spunk, come on. Uh, But Nancy's anger soon started to consume her and she would destroy anything she could find. The two sisters shared a room and Nancy once destroyed her sister's side of the room simply because Nancy was frustrated with her own math homework. But then the violent outbursts took a turn and the family knew that something had to be done. Nancy once stood at the top of the stairs holding a brown paper bag over the banister. Inside the bag was Aquarius, the family cat. Nancy claimed she wanted to see if the cat would land on its feet. But when her mother warned she would hurt the cat, Nancy said, quote, I want to. Oh, boy. Deborah managed to get the bag away from Nancy, and in a split second, Nancy was suddenly confused and had zero memory of what had just happened. When her mother mentioned it to her, explained the whole thing about the cat, Nancy broke down in tears. Hmm. Nancy's parents took her to see a psychologist who ran a series of tests. The results stated that Nancy's IQ was 135, which, one, I love that that was a test. Uh, And just to give you an idea, the average IQ for an adult is between 85 and 115. And at 10 and a half years old, she was reading at the equivalent of a college level. Part of her problem was that while her reading and spelling placed her in the 99th percentile, Nancy was almost half a grade behind when it came to math, so she was only in the 47th percentile there, and that's what always kept her back as far as, like, they could have probably put her a lot further in school if her math was up to the same level as her English. And I get it. I hate math. I'm terrible at it. So, uh, the final psychologist evaluation suggested that Nancy believed that her parents rejected and ignored her and that her mother was controlling. The doctor noted Nancy's insecurity about her own abilities, saying that this causes tension to build up, and without the ability to control herself internally, Nancy lashes out. Based on recommendations, Nancy's parents arranged for her to start seeing a therapist who felt that Nancy's desperate need for love and attention stemmed from the fact that Nancy believed she wasn't getting as much as others. This led to angry outbursts towards her siblings and her peers. 
And to all of this, I'm going to quickly add, thank God that psychology has come a long way since the 60s. Because if I hear that a child is having violent moments and then not remembering them, I'm going to think there's a bigger problem than the child feeling they're ignored. But I am not a psychologist, so what do I know? After one session, the therapist said that it was likely that Nancy had anxiety and that her compulsive need to achieve high levels in academic reading was Nancy's way of compensating for what she felt were her inadequacies. It was suggested that Nancy be involved in regular therapy and that both Deborah and Frank get therapy as well, saying, quote, you two have a lot of problems until you're able to work them out individually and as a couple. Nancy will never be okay. Which hmm. I find an interesting choice. Again, Nancy terrorized her family for months, repeatedly episodes where she would yell, curse, and then threaten to kill them or herself. And every time it happened, her eyes would glaze over, and after, she wouldn't remember what had happened. Her therapist continued to blame Deborah and Frank, insisting that Nancy would be fine if they just learned to handle her properly. (sighs) Nancy's first evaluation described her as, quote, a bright girl with a personality problem that stemmed from her troubled environment. On September 29th, 1969, uh, Nancy was finally reevaluated by a second therapist who diagnosed Nancy. This is now about a year after her being a uh, bright girl with disability with a personality problem. The second therapist said, quote, that Nancy is a schizophrenic girl who is currently in a state of decomposition and regression with suggestions of probable continuation of her regression. It was them bringing up the word schizophrenic that I was like, okay, they're going to start heading in the right direction of how to help her. But then not. The clinic that was treating Nancy then said that based on this new diagnosis, they are no longer able to treat her. Uh, She needed more care than they were able to give her. The doctors didn't give the spongins any information or recommend any resources to them whatsoever, just said, we can't help you. Good luck. Oh, boy. They simply cut ties with the family entirely. A direct quote from one of their files stated, quote, What is seen now is purely a product of what has been fed into the situation in the interactions between the parents and the child over the past few years. The spongins were essentially satisfied and our contacts with them were terminated at this time. The spongins were not satisfied in Anyway, sure. uh, thankfully, Deborah and Frank refused to give up, and they ended up finding a psychiatrist who, even after Nancy threw things in the man's office, which left him with broken glasses and a cut on his forehead, the doctor agreed to take her on as a patient. His recommendation was that Nancy be placed in a residential treatment program, but finding one that the family could afford proved to be a challenge. And money aside, Nancy was a unique case. Traditionally, emotionally disturbed children also have various learning disabilities. Nancy didn't really, she was kind of on par. She was beyond when it came to reading and stuff, but math-wise, she was almost like on par. So it wasn't as extreme learning disability as an emotionally disturbed child normally had at that point. 
Right. She would also have vivid nightmares about sharks that turned into hallucinations during the day where she believed that they would kill her. And reading that was heartbreaking to think back to Sid saying, I would hold her when she had nightmares. And mm-hmm. it's like, ah, oh, oh, no, I am falling for the the beautiful parts of their love that everybody else falls for. It's, uh, <laughs> it's easy to do. Uh, on the night before Thanksgiving, when Nancy was 11 years old, her psychiatrist had her admitted to the adolescent unit of the psychiatric center. The next day, when her family arrived to see her, they found out that she'd been placed in the locked women's ward. The hospital allegedly called the psychiatrist to say they felt the adolescent ward wouldn't be safe for her, as some of the teenagers there had a history of criminal behavior, as though some of the women there didn't as well. Uh, The Spongens were adamant that they were going to take Nancy home, and her doctor only agreed if they would be willing to keep her on a steady stream of Thorazine. Nancy had to spend the weekend at the hospital, as the paperwork alone took two days to deal with. Wow. Yep. Nancy was then sent to a small facility, Darlington Institute, in Connecticut. It was called Barton. The cost was $850 a month. At the end of the semester, the staff at Barton felt that it would be best for Nancy to transfer to their Avon unit for the fall. They believed it would offer the scholastic level that Nancy required. The Avon unit was known as Lakeside Campus, but was and while it was considerably closer to home, about 40 miles or 64 kilometers away from the Spongens, it was also $1,000 a month. Lakeside Campus had 80 kids ranging between age 14 to 18. Nancy was only 13 at the time. And at Lakeside, it's where Nancy first got involved with drugs. During her first visit home, she admitted to getting high and taking acid and LSD. When she returned to school, Nancy started dating a boy named Jeff. Using ink and a needle, Nancy tattooed his name on her chest and a flower on her thigh. Then she suffered from a perforated uterus after using a coat hanger to try and give herself an abortion. But when she was examined, the doctor found no evidence that she was ever pregnant. But if you ask Nancy, she was adamant that she knew she was pregnant doctor said she was not Mm. in may 1972 the family struggled to pay for lakeside campus so they looked to the state of pennsylvania for funding but the only way to get funding was if nancy was determined to have brain damage so she was sent to a neurologist for an eeg the results of which were inconclusive there was no evidence of a tumor or any conclusive evidence that was caused by Nancy's traumatic birth. According to the doctor's report, no abnormality was found. However, quote, her history and behavior characteristics are those seen in the presence of dysfunction of the central nervous system, and her deviant performance seems directly or indirectly related to her neurological condition. So Nancy was then seen by Dr. Alan Cott, who officially diagnosed Nancy schizophrenic and for some reason despite the fact that she first received that diagnosis in 1969 it wasn't until three years later and this doctor saying it that it started to get taken seriously she was never properly treated for it 
And during her second year at Lakeside, the headmaster said that Nancy would be ready to graduate in June. He said, quote, we wanted you to know because she should be getting her college applications out. The school felt that Nancy was academically advanced and ready for a college course load. She was 15 years old and clearly struggling with schizophrenia. Can someone with schizophrenia live a normal life? Of course. When it's completely untreated? I, I'm no expert, but I'm going to say probably not. Uh, after Nancy's parents practically begged them, the school agreed to keep Nancy on for another year. But they said that at 16, she would be done. Nancy learned that the school was going to let her out, but that her parents convinced them to keep her for another year. She was livid and responded with self-mutilation. She was taken to a hospital where she was stitched up and sent back to school as they were told, ah, the wounds weren't very serious. The people <sighs> who are in a professional role who continue to fail I know. this woman throughout her childhood. Uh, two weeks later, she attempted suicide again. This time, the doctor said she was about five minutes away from bleeding out entirely. The wound required six stitches on the inside and 15 on the outside. She was 15 years old at the time. Now, Nancy scored 1030 on the SATs. I assume it would have been higher if uh, her math had been as high as her uh, reading right. level. Um, but of course, I hear SATs. And the first thing I think of is the SAT episode of Saved by the Bell when Zach gets <laughs> a higher score than Jesse and Jesse can't handle it. And for those who are dying to know, Zach got 1502 and Jesse got 1205. It's weird they use the same numbers, but in a different way. Uh, why do I bother to bring this up? I don't know. I'm just built different. I like it. So her impressive score got Nancy, who again was only 15 at the time, into the University of Colorado. When Nancy was heading to school, she told her mother, quote, I'm happy for the first time in my life really happy. Hmm. During a Thanksgiving ski trip with friends at 16, Nancy was arrested for receiving stolen property. It's believed the people uh, that she was with had stolen skis from other students and stored them in Nancy's room. Then she tried to buy drugs from an undercover cop. Uh, after she left school, she returned home and things didn't get better. Uh, one night, she accidentally drove her parents' car off a 20-foot embankment. She was charged with reckless driving and driving after midnight with a junior license. Apparently, at the time, in the state of Pennsylvania, 16- to 18-year-olds were not permitted to drive after midnight. Mm. So since the accident occurred in a different county, the police refused to release Nancy, so her family was given two options. One, she stays in jail until the preliminary hearing— or two, they have her committed to a mental hospital. They chose to have her committed. Oh, boy. When Nancy was released, her parents were at a loss for what to do. So they gave Nancy the choice to move to New York, something that Nancy had talked about doing for years. They agreed they would help her pay her rent for the first six months. Nancy herse herself said that she worked as a go-go dancer for the first year she was living in New York, and for a while, the move seemed to help. 
Nancy's addiction to heroin, which started a few years prior, seemed to be in check, and Nancy was being weaned off methadone. By Nancy's 19th birthday, she was off drugs completely. Then Nancy decided that she wanted to take a trip to England. Her parents were concerned, but Nancy said it would only be for two weeks. She was set to leave in the first week of March 1977. But the trip didn't last two weeks. It ended up lasting 18 months. A week after she left, Nancy called home to say she was playing bass fiddle in an all-girl band. The fact that she never previously played, played bass fiddle was irrelevant. Nancy also mentioned meeting the Sex Pistols, in particular Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious. Less than two weeks later, and Nancy had left the all-girl band and was back on heroin. Friends say around this time, Nancy worked in an S&M room while in Europe and then made extra cash as a sex worker. Sid and Nancy stayed in a hotel, but then moved to another after they got kicked out in November. They later went to court on drug charges from the incident of getting kicked out. Then she called home to say that she and Sid were moving in with his mother. When Deborah asked if Nancy was on heroin again, Nancy said, quote, yes, but I'm going on methadone again. Sid wants me to. Then Nancy called home to say that she and Sid had gotten married, so her parents should probably send them a wedding gift, preferably cash. Mm. So her parents sent her money, as did her grandmother, but according to records, the marriage never happened. After the Sex Pistols broke up, Sid and Nancy moved to New York, where Nancy would be murdered less than two months later. So now we have this background info on Nancy. So we're going to go back to theory number three, which suggests that Nancy stabbed herself, whether as a suicide attempt or to seek attention. Right. And while a stab wound for the sake of attention seeking may seem extreme, it's not out of the realm of possibilities. When the Sex Pistols were filming that mockumentary in Paris, the director, Julian Temple, claimed that one day while Sid was on set, Nancy cut her wrists in what Temple felt was an attempt to show Sid he should just never leave her alone, even for a few hours. Because again, this couple was together 24-7. Right. So maybe it's possible she was trying to get Sid's attention, but he was passed out and she ended up bleeding to death. Sid was very similar in that friends have said if Sid was with a group of people and no one was paying attention to him, he'd do something dramatic like cut his hand until somebody noticed him. But I refuse to believe that Nancy's death was an accident. Shortly after Sid's death, his mother Anne claimed that Sid and Nancy both died as part of a suicide pact. What? Anne even claimed that she found a handwritten note in Sid's jacket pocket that read, quote, We had a death pact, and I have to keep my half of the bargain. Please bury me next to my baby. Bury me in my leather jacket, jeans, and motorcycle boots. Goodbye. Anne further added to the claim by saying that when Sid tried to jump out a window at Bellevue in October 1978, that he said, quote, I want to die. I want to join Nazi. I didn't keep my part of the bargain. So Sid's mother believed that Nancy's death was a suicide. Well, what does Nancy's mother think? Well, apparently, Deborah believes that Nancy spent most of her life wanting to die and said, 
She did so by convincing Sid to stab her. So I find it interesting that the one mother is like, oh, no, they did this together. This was their thing. And the other mother is like, oh, she was part of it, but she had him do it. Right. So I find that interesting. But regardless as to which theory you may lean towards, what we know for sure was summed up nicely by photographer Eileen Polk, who said, quote, Nancy's murder was never thoroughly investigated. There were a lot of dangerous people hanging around them both back then. And that's what will forever bother me about this. It seems that police just didn't care enough about the victim to bother fully investigating her murder. They immediately saw Sid as their suspect and decided there was no further work to do. And the idea that someone may have gotten away with murder is so frustrating and sad, Nancy deserved better. During his last few months, Sid would tell his friends, quote, When I die, bury me next to Nancy. So after his death, his mother Anne and some friends called Nancy's parents to ask if they could get a burial plot next to Nancy's. The Spongens said absolutely not. Sid's family had a hard time finding a place in New York to have a funeral for Sid, as most places were charging obscene amounts of money just because Sid was famous. They ended up using a place in New Jersey to have Sid cremated, They took his ashes to the Jewish cemetery where Nancy was buried in Philadelphia. They were escorted by some of these cemetery employees who wouldn't leave them while they were standing at the grave. So they left, pulled over at the other side of the cemetery, where Anne went over a fence and quickly poured her son's ashes on Nancy's grave. Anne returned to the car and said, quote, well, they're finally together. And that I'm going to say her family said no. It's just like, I I get it. But at the same time, it's like, if I found out about that, I would be livid. Especially her mother believes that Sid's the one who killed her. Yeah. So I just, they've been through enough. Just stop. Yeah. In 1986, writer-director Alex Cox released a movie about the couple starring Gary Oldman and Chloe Webb. Oldman even wore Sid's own leather spike bracelet and padlock on a chain in the movie after they were gifted to him by Sid's mother. Courtney Love originally auditioned for the role of Nancy, but ended up being cast as Nancy's friend, Gretchen. A play about Sid, called Curtain Sid, debuted at London's West End in September 2009. The play is set in Kurt Cobain's greenhouse and basically revolves around the ghost of Sid trying to convince Kurt not to commit suicide. And if you've heard our Kurt Cobain episode, then you know that I never want to see that play. (laughs) (laughs) I have zero interest. (laughs) Yeah, no, no interest whatsoever. Uh, September 1996, police were sent to the home of Sid's mother, Anne Beverly, after she sent her friends letters saying that she was planning to commit suicide. When police arrived at the house on September 6th, they found that Anne had overdosed. She was 63 years old. The story of Sid and Nancy has placed them next to Romeo and Juliet and Bonnie and Clyde as famous couples who were known for an intense love but ultimately met a tragic end. 
And even though their story lasted less than two years, decades later, couples still see them as the poster couple for eternal love. Some celebrity couples have even used the couple as inspiration in their Halloween costumes. In 2021, it was Travis Barker and Kourtney Kardashian. In 2015, it was Harry Hamlin and Lisa Renna, after which Harry Hamlin had to make a public apology for wearing a shirt with a swastika on it. Oh my God. Think it through, Hamlin. <laughs> Think it through. <laughs> uh, another couple that... Lauren pointed out to me, Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins, who dressed as Sid and Nancy in the Foo Fighters 1997 music video, Forever Long. And just one more couple, because I, you could have told me to guess and I never would have guessed this couple. Kermit and Miss Piggy. Yes, I'm being serious. Kermit and Miss Piggy did in fact dress up like Sid and Nancy. It was part of a photo shoot for the 2005 holiday issue of Zinc magazine, but the photos were never used. They didn't officially come out until the fashion designer posted them on his personal blog in 2011. Now, if I was in charge of that photo shoot, I would have insisted, insisted on calling it Sid and Hamsey. <laughs> <laughs> I found that very clever. But this is probably why I'm not in the biz, as it's called. It's also probably not called the biz. That's probably why you're not, Ding Dong. Look, <laughs> I will, of course, post photos of all four couples on our socials at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. John Simon Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious, was described as goofy and sweet with a brilliant sense of humor. And most who described Nancy did so in a negative way. And I just wanted someone to say something nice about her. I wanted so badly for this girl, who was clearly troubled, to be remembered as more than her problems. And of course, the person who described her best was Sid. He said that Nancy Spungen was, quote, beautiful, witty, extremely smart, with a great sense of humor. Despite some of the rough parts in their relationship, everyone who knew the couple tends to focus on the belief that Sid loved Nancy more than anything. According to Malcolm McLaren, quote, she was his first and only love of his life. As everyone knows, you may argue with your first, want to leave them, move on and be with others, but you will never get over them. Nancy's mother, Deborah Spungen, described them as, quote, two lost souls who found each other. Their relationship came out of their inability to find what they wanted in the outside world. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. First thing I have to say is Kermit and Piggy as Sid and Nancy. What about Amsidian and Hamsey? Amphibian and oh, Sibian. I, I, I got where we were. Yeah. Okay, cool. Hashtag hogs before frogs. Hogs before frogs. That's all I had to say about that. I like it coming back. It has to come back. Listen, yeah. um, I have a lot to talk about. So yeah. let's take one more quick break, grab another drink, hit the can, maybe just check on the incense. Make, make sure it hasn't, you know, toppled over. And we're going to be right back on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. 
Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we are discussing Sid and Nancy, and now it is time for my thoughts theories, feelings. So I'm going to go back through my notes, um, which I'll make my way through fairly quickly because I really want to spend the bulk of my time with my psychologist hat on. Of course. Um, Oh, I assume it never goes off. It doesn't anymore. Uh, First note, first note I took right out the gate, Legs McNeil, what a name. (laughs) (laughs) The name, the names in this are some of the more interesting ones. It takes me back to, to mob names. Oh, I love, sure. I love the mob yep. names, but these ones were like, you're not just going to have like a one name in the middle. You're not just going to be Legs something. It's like, no, your your name is just Legs McNeil now. Yeah. Rockets oh. Red Glare, Neon I, Leon. Yeah. I Neon Leon. I loved it. Uh, you mentioned Johnny Rotten's uh, naming his hamster after Pink Floyd. Um, yeah. Here's a fun one, very briefly for me in high school. I A friend of mine liked a boy. They were going on a date. She brought me. He brought a friend. Needless to say, nothing happened between them, but the friend and I made out during the movie. Of course. He lent me uh, Pink Floyd The Wall, uh, which I'd never seen before. And then as we were talking about it on the phone afterwards, I, t- I, you know, I was like, oh, wow, like this is so crazy, whatever. Long story short, um, we talked on the, flo- the phone a few times. I mentioned at some point in the conversation that he had nice teeth. He never spoke to me again. And then I was like, is that that weird? That I remembered what his teeth looked like? Anyway, his loss. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You are a beautiful, beautiful thing, you know? Thank you. Um, Yes, everybody blaming Nancy for him. I wrote down Yoko Ono. Then a few minutes, you you said Yoko Ono. And it is that that I get my back up about that, too, where it's it's like that kind of um, trend of wanting to blame a woman for the actions of a man. And it's like, well, he also can potentially be in control of his actions, believe it or not. Um, it's also interesting to me, you know, they moved into the Chelsea Hotel. They were only there for two months before Nancy passed. And then we were talking about, obviously, her calling, trying to get more money. And how much money did he blow through? Because they had gotten so much money from those first two failed record deals. It's interesting to me that they could have blown through that much. Then I just wrote, Nancy, his new manager, woof. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, I assume they went through money quickly because they yeah. went through drugs quickly. 
must have been. Now, you probably don't know the answer to this, but my question is, when he was found roaming the hotel, when yeah. the police arrived, was there blood on him? That I never heard anything and that see, said he had even blood. If there, yeah, even if there was, even if there was, that doesn't necessarily prove anything because he did find her, et cetera. Sure. But if there wasn't, that's also interesting to me because... Ah, yeah. Anyway, uh, more to come on that. Two seconds here. Sure. Um, it's interesting to me, again, you know, talking about how he he had a new girlfriend a month later and that she had also had a partner die. It does definitely feel like maybe they were consoling each other, that kind of thing. But it also feels to me like he just didn't want to feel his feelings. It also feels to me like it was like if his feelings really were as big as, as they seemed to be, that perhaps he... He just didn't really want to fully look at those. And so it's easier yeah. to just, you know, move on to someone else or or be distracted by someone else rather than really sitting in, in the grief, you know? Um, yes, because I to me, he I don't know. Obviously, I never knew him personally. But from everything I heard about him, he seemed to me the type where it would be he sees her dead on the floor and he's like cradling like they find him like holding her body sobbing is kind of what I would expect from that level. But he was, it seems like he was still kind of out of it or maybe just mentally shutting down because he doesn't want to feel. Also, and I say this with nothing but kindness, but let's also remember they were 20. So in his writings about her and stuff like that, like I think it's also important to remember it through the lens of like, that is still a, that is still a young love time. Oh, for um, sure. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, again, I say that with kindness. I'm not saying it judgmentally, but I-, I hear you. But I also could see it being like if in that moment he finds her and he doesn't remember the night, the night before fully or he remembers little bits and he just assumes, oh, my God, I've, I've killed her. It must have been me. I could right. see him backing out of the room and being like, what the fuck did I do? I could sure. also see him killing himself in that moment, which he didn't do. So – but yeah, to your point, he also was so out of it that it's hard to speculate if he wasn't in his right mind anyway. Um, okay, this is something I did not know about this case, that there was so many people in that room. And I really agree that I think it's such a tragedy that they never looked into her death further. Because if there was 10 to 12 people in that room at 4 a.m., and I don't know what time it was he woke up the next day and, and found her. It could have been, you know, it could have been 10.50. It was 1050. Thank you very much. Okay. So, and I don't know if we know what the time was that Neon Leon claims to have left, but, you know, again, there's still a a short window. It's not like they were alone from midnight to 11 a.m. Right. Right. Where it's like, chances are, if they were alone from midnight to 11 in that room together, it was probably somebody in that room, one, one, one or both of them. Yeah. But if we know that for, at 4 a.m. there was t- potentially 12 people in there, 10 people as well as them, that's a lot of other possibilities and a lot of room, you know. Um, and I get it. Listen, they're partying. I, I'm no prude. I get it. They could have been up p- partying till 6, 7, 8, 9 a.m. Who knows? Sure. So who knows when these people were leaving and 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 what have you. Um, but the fact that this – the fact that the money was gone – when the police got there, the drawer was open. The fact that there's two people, both Neon Leon saying, when I left, this guy was still there. And then this guy bragging about it, whether or not he did it. 
where there's smoke, there's fire. It just feels like that is more than enough to be properly investigated. But to your point, yeah. it's very sad because because there wasn't anything done at the time and now so many people are are dead. It's it's I feel like virtually impossible. But it does seem to me like this is not as cut and dry as my perception of them was. I had no idea that right. there was that many people there. And when there's that many people there also, p- other people know things. There are definitely people, sure, who were varying degrees of, of you know, not in their sober send of, uh, state of mind. But sure. there are people who can corroborate Neon Leon potentially to some extent or timelines or who is there, who isn't. You know what I mean? Like, if these people were all properly questioned, if they could have gotten figured out who who all was there, I think they could have built a better timeline to at least try and shed some light on what other possibilities could have been there because I think there's lots. Um, yes, and also I forgot to mention uh, some of the people who attended the party, Neon Leon uh, included, lived at the Chelsea. Mm. So they wouldn't even have to leave the building. They would just scoot up an elevator or go down the hall or whatever to their own place. I mean, who knows, right? It's like, how late did people leave? Could somebody have left at 1030 and then Sid gets up at 1050? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's it's um, I just feel like there's a lot of of uh, it's a short period. It's a short enough period of time, but enough people that it's, you know what I mean? But enough period of time that there's lots of possibilities of what could have happened oh, with yeah. multiple different people in that situation. Again, it's very sad. This Rocket's Red Glare character, if he really was telling people he killed her, regardless of whether he did or he didn't, shame on him. Um, yeah. And I did like the backstory that you gave, which also really speaks to um, his kind of emotional, psychological state and potentially the reason why he either A, could lie about it, or B, could potentially be, you know, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that his upbringing means he could be a killer, but I could see um, a level of detachment from that kind of upbringing that sure. could lead him to be able to um, want to rob these people, get into some sort of physical altercation that potentially escalates into an accidental um, her accidentally getting stabbed. You know what I mean? Like, I could see, um, because it's pretty extreme. His childhood, that, that that's a pretty extreme list. That's a yeah. lot of trauma. Oh, I, I say that 100%. with love. That's a lot of trauma. That un, un, uh, untreated, um, yeah, I could see that being uh, a heavy burden. Um, now we're going to get into what I really want to talk about. Okay. I didn't know any of this about Nancy, and I find it all fascinating and truly truly heartbreaking and to me and in the break i was feverishly googling so i want to preface all of this by saying i am not an expert i am not a i'm not licensed i am and again what i have googled i did manage to find a few um three sources for what i'm about to share so that makes me feel like there's something with this um but again i i did this very quickly because I'm just, I'm reacting on the fly. I didn't know. Of course. As soon as you said that she had been 
sedated as a baby because she was crying all the time, that it was so bad they were giving her phenobarbital. As soon as you said that, I was like, that's the key to all of this. And I started doing some quick searches. And one of the things that came up in 2012 was they had done a study with lab rats, which is, I feel, I have sad feelings about animal testing, but um, there was a study that was done where lab rats were exposed to phenobarbital, which is the same thing we know that she was given as an infant, and they were exposed to it when they were neonatal. So this is lab rats that were still in the womb. And when those rats were born, uh, they showed as they grew up, they had increased risks of psychiatric disorders, including schizophrenia. And later life psycho- psychiatric outcomes as well and that the basically the hypothesis was that phenobarbital exposure in neonatal rats increases the risk of schizophrenia like behavior abnormalities in adulthood so the point is is that it could have been schizophrenia but it's also possible and i know that this was this was rats as opposed to human trials or human studies but i also hope they're not doing human studies where they're giving yeah. babies this uh, doses of this because what this reads like to me is that i believe because this is the first thing that came to mind again it says our findings suggest that neonatal exposure to phenobarbital can predispose schizophrenia like behavior abnormalities so it may be that she had, quote, schizophrenia, but it may also be that she just literally had her brain chemistry changed because as an infant, she was given a very high-powered barbiturate to make her stop crying, which is heartbreaking. Oh, 100%. I mean, heartbreaking. I mean... I, I, that that to I, me is like, I mean, that's... I'm, I'm going to say it. I mean, I want to... I want. I, I mean, Nancy, I want to put her in a blanket. I mean, that's... That's not baby oh, that, that's yeah. not that baby's fault. It's not. I mean, I don't know, obviously I'm not uh, I'm not a doctor, of course. Um so I and I don't know all of the instances so I don't know why specifically. I don't know what the root of her crying was, but the second I read that it was like, oh, she wouldn't stop crying. She was always crying. I was like, oh yeah, colic, huh? That sucks. Yeah. Because my oldest had colic, cry all the time, all the time, like until the adult is crying. Like it's just, it never stops. And you're just immediately like, I've done something wrong, but they've been fed, they have slept, they have whatever, but they're just, like, it's just, that's how they're wired. Um, And it's just something that I don't know why it happens, but you just live through. I had heard comments that it was potentially a traumatic birth because when he was born I was in labor I don't know why I'm going into this but I was in labor and then uh doctor was like the baby's heartbeat has dropped dramatically I was I'd been in labor for like six or so hours and it was like we gotta we gotta get him out immediately or this child won't survive and he came out and I think he had the cord wrapped around him and everything and it was considered a traumatic birth most c-sections are considered traumatic because why wouldn't it be instead of you coming out when you feel you're ready your poor mother is gutted like a fish but um (laughs) I can say that it's fine I've I've done it multiple times uh but uh yeah I could see it being traumatic and it's that's 
for him specifically, what caused that level of colic. And I mean, I just lucked out that the colic lasted for a year and a half and he started the terrible twos six months early. (laughs) So he just, he was a lot for the first three years of his life. Uh, All of my gray hair is probably from that first three years of his life, but it's fine. It's fine. I love that boy so much. But the point is, I, I, I get being a parent where it's like the child is screaming, just screaming all the time. And you're like, oh my God, please do something. And then a doctor running tests and being like, the child's healthy. There's nothing I can do. And then just like a, just try this. I'm just, I mean, I again, this was, you know, this was like the, the 50s. So right. who knows? Like this is, it's not surprising to me that they'd be like, oh, this will be fine. Yeah, give yeah, your baby it was, a sedative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that it was just – to me, it just doesn't feel like there was the research done at the time for no. use in infants. And then people started doing it and then this is this is what happened. Um, and listen, I think that what you're, what you're explaining is actually a great kind of – you're reiterating my theory, which is you have an exact almost identical situation, a sim- very similar traumatic birth, Yeah, the same kind of colic – you didn't choose to give your child a very high dose, or I'm, I don't know what the dosage was. I shouldn't say that. A, a sure. very potent drug to yes. sedate them. Um, right. And now you have not had this experience that they had with Nancy. So correct. That's at least one strike in the. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely, yeah. he definitely chilled out. Yeah. So I mean, things got weird there, but that's just boys in general well but he has he has since chilled out uh so i yeah i'm i'm happy that i'm happy that drugs were never the option (laughs) yeah and and listen i know that i've i've literally only quoted a a study about rats and people are like well that's just a rat study like what what else you got for me well you know i only took five ten minutes i have more (laughs) (laughs) for the record i never doubted you and i would like to use this quick moment to show the difference between us. Yeah. We we took a quick break uh, at our, uh, at the last break. We yeah. just like, we hit pause on the record. We run to a bathroom. We come back. She spent that time Googling this, looking for things about this phenobarbital. What did I do? I went, I was singing a song in my head and I was like, what song is it I'm thinking of that says Sid and Nancy? And that's what I Googled. It was Crazy Town's Butterfly, where the quote is, girl, it's me and you like Sid and Nancy. Um, so that's the difference between us. <laughs> on the break, nope. she's she's working, she's searching things. You and on the break, week. I'm working. You know, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> nope. That is true. That that's, is true. You know, no, you I, I just- I work in a different way. Listen, you've done more than enough. You go above and beyond every GD week. No. Um, So because phenobarbital, like you mentioned, it it is is typically given for – to be an anti-epileptic drug. Right. And it works well for that. Um, The the problem is is that when you're using it for someone who doesn't have epilepsy – it's not treating the thing it needs to treat in the brain, right? So right. now you're just giving the brain this chemical and it's not doing what it needs to do. So here are some side effects. Hyperactivity, behavioral problems, sedation, and even dementia. Oh, God. And this is in young people. Um, 
Those effects are dose-related to some extent. So another question I have, which I'm not saying you would have the answer to, is what was the dosage? Were they Was she prescribed too much? Were they giving her too much? Was she given such a high dose that they really altered her brain chemistry to a point that this is what her life was, which again is tragic. Um, I don't know exactly how much she was given, but I remember um, in her mother's book when she was talking about her being given this, it was a finally, once she started taking it, she would finally sleep for an hour or two hours um, at a time. And when she woke up, it would be screaming again. So she would get it again. So you also are just, you're perpetuating also like a drug dependency. So you give yeah. the child something that makes them sleep or makes them feel high, for lack yeah. of a better term. And then when it wears off and they start to cry again, you give it to them again. Yep. That's, yeah, yep. great. Um, uh Another side effect that's listed here is psychosis. So that's another good one to remember. Mm. Um, now, again, they didn't have this information at the time. I get that. I'm, I'm, but I, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make it any less tragic that this baby, <laughs> this is also like, you know, it was a, she was a baby. She was an infant. Yeah. Like that is the most, you know, oh God, it's, it, it makes my stomach hurt. Um, but again, it will, Improve the quality of life for somebody who has bad seizures. Absolutely. But the problem, again, is, is that when you give it to somebody who doesn't have that problem, then you're just starting all of these other kinds of, of problems. It also lists that, that people who have, uh, have been taken as, as young children do develop drug addiction issues. That is another thing that is quite common. Mm-hmm. Um suicide like all of these things are are you know are possibilities is my point so all of this is to say that is it possible she could have already been you know predisposed to having a mental illness having schizophrenia it's possible but i'm going to put my money on that it's the fact that they put her as an infant on that drug and like you're saying the mother was giving it to her in regular doses yeah I think they altered the the brain chemistry of that child and woman permanently, which again really breaks my heart. And it really breaks my heart that she was her her the way that people talked about her was that she was so awful and so terrible in so many ways, and that you know, because again, it's like this person didn't stand a chance from the from the literally from the time she was born, and yeah. that's not on her. No. Um, my God. And especially, too, like being so intelligent, having that high IQ, like, you know, and then being, you know, carted from place to place, therapist to therapist, facility to facility, like that poor girl, that poor woman. Like, I, I just my heart breaks for her, truly. Um, again, I've could the sedatives as a baby have changed her brain chemistry? Then later. <laughs> no memory of this cat incident, possible disasso- dissociation disorder, then no, no, what was the sedative as a baby? <laughs> I like, I just, I like, I like that. My, my journey in my own notes. Working like, through it. Um, exactly. And the fact, again, that they've seen that that it can it, it has been described as what this use, the use of this in the in rats um, in the womb, when the, when the rat is in the womb, has produced schizophrenia-like symptoms as a child and adult rat. Like, to me, it's like, right. I just feel like that's the smoking gun. But then to that, what do you do with that? 
Now, to your point, she never got proper treatment. She was never put on proper medication. But then it's also heartbreaking that it's like, so what? The answer to the to the fact that you altered her brain chemistry by giving her drugs as an infant is to put her on more drugs as a teen and adult? Like, come on. Like, that's heartbreaking, too. Yeah. But even that being said, I mean, it maybe it would have been better to get her on proper medication so she could have had some quality of life um, or, or a better quality of life, I should say. Um, not that I'm judging her quality of life, but you know what I'm saying. It sounds like she really went through it and, and yeah. you know, um, a lot of chaos, all of the above. But I also understand, too, like so many things to me are so much clearer now about them and their story, uh, especially in terms of her. Um yeah, I'm sure she was extremely bonded to him because she felt she felt a like she didn't belong in her family. She was lashing out against her siblings, which was for whatever reason, you know, again, uh, I'm speculating, alleging, but I think it's tied back to this medication issue. She felt, I'm sure, a lot of feelings about her parents, whose main kind of way of handling it was to send her away. You mean to tell me that when you're a kid who's, you know, early preteen into to young teen who's being sent from facility to facility and stuff like that, that's – I mean, there's no way that that's not going to put huge abandonment issues on top of a mental health disorder, on top of potential altered brain chemistry. I can see why she was extremely attached to him and why – she formed this bond and was like, please don't ever leave me. Please be with me all the time. Please hold me at night while I have these terrible nightmares. Like, it, it makes a lot of sense. And to your point, it's quite beautiful in a sense, in a tragic way that they found each other. Um, but it's also so obviously, you know, depressing, sad, all of the adjectives that it, yeah. it ended the way that it did. Um, now, in terms of what do I think happened – it's so hard to speculate. I I mean, the fact that we we have heard that there was past abuse um, feels like that always escalates. The fact that there was this potential suicide pact, the fact that there was quotes about him saying, well, Nancy said she wasn't going to live till 21 anyway, which, by the way, I think it's more than possible she had been dealing, obviously, with suicide ideation for some time. We know that she yeah. had attempted, obviously, when she was in, a, in her teens. Um, so that also seems possible. Again, I have nothing but compassion. This was someone – she was somebody who I think was very failed by um, doctors and medical professionals. Again, I know it was a different time, but the fact of the matter is that she was failed, period. Um, you know? Oh, and so, God, yeah. Um, that's uh, – that's just so sad. I just, I, I don't know. My, my heart just really breaks for her. I just think the idea that um, she also, like, I, I'm curious how much she knew about that happening to her when she was an infant and, and the potential that it's, like, possibly these things that you're feeling and the way that your brain works, like, maybe, maybe this is why. Like, I'm curious whether or not her mother or, or parents shared that with her or not because I, I bet you, or if I could try and put myself in her shoes – that could give peace to someone to know sure. that it's like, this isn't just me. It could answer a question of like, why does my brain work like this? Or why do I feel this way? Or why, like having something to kind of, um, some sort of explanation or some sort of 
whatever. I just feel like could have been freeing. And I think this is me just trying to find ways that I just would have loved to have alleviated her from some of her feelings because I feel like it must have been such a large load to, to carry. Um, the only other thing I have to say very quickly is I forgot that this band existed for such a short period of time. It's yeah. so funny to remember that such a prolific uh, band and these figures in pop culture were were famous and 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 you know in the public eye for such a short period of time and the fact that she was 20 and he was 21 my god these babies these children how sad to your point at the end of the day it's just all tragic because that is just far too young far too young you barely even started barely even started at that point but again to wrap it up if i had to say what i think happened I think it's just too hard for me to be able to 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 speculate, but I think that there are answers with the people who are in that room, which I'm sure we will never get, but I think that that it's not as cut and dry as any of of the theories may lead us to think. I think that the, yeah. you know, I think that there's shades of gray whenever you hear there was 12 people in a room and somebody ended up dead. Oh, 100%. Somebody knows something, their name may or may not rhyme. Uh, but they know something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, it's just, I also, I mean, Neon Leon, uh, it's just really fun to say at this point. It is. He says that Rockets was the last person there. Right. Rockets never denied being the last person there. Right. So it's like, what? Like, I just, to me, I see your point. Um, about how many people are there. I also just am hard, hard leaning towards the idea that Sid's passed out. She's in the bathroom. Somebody's going through their stuff, finds money and is like, okay, yeah, starts taking it. She comes out and is like, oh no. And they grab the nearest thing and stab her. And she ends up, you know, back in the bathroom you know trying to trying to fix it i don't know trying to do something or she was in shock or whatever and then she just bled out and it just feels like there was never a part of her life that was calm and like pleasant it just feels yeah. like everything was just so violent for her right from the start and to your point i think it would have brought a lot of peace for her to think, oh, yeah, this was probably caused by a drug you were given as a child. So it could she could have a moment of, so it's not my fault. Right. And it's off her shoulders. And it's like, oh, so that's what it is. That having an answer, because you gu you're guaranteed you know that over her life, she was like, why am I like this? What's wrong with me? What's going on? And it's so tragic to think she was so smart. And it's like, God, what she could have accomplished, you know? And so it's just, oh, yeah. the whole yeah. thing is just depressing. And I was the one who said to do this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brought no, I think, it's, I think it's interesting, though. I think it's interesting, you know, to, to talk about. I There was a lot I did not know. And I think, yeah. I think also, like, you know, it's important to remember, too, like, when we think about these things and we think about how, what our perception is of these kind of, like, historical 
pop culture figures and what our kind of like preconceived notions are, I think it's important to remember that there's always more to the story and what you think you may know, you may not actually know the full story. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting too, because when you talked about like no one had anything good to say about her, uh, it was so hard to find, like even her mother didn't really have anything good to say about her. And then you hear her story. It's like, well, good Lord. Yeah. Like, you know, she had a lot going on that was completely not her fault physically chemically her yeah. brain chemistry you know what i mean like that's um so so again like like to me it's it's just i think it's it's interesting to be able to kind of see people from different perspectives and and i think that that's why this is very important and exciting um and i think yeah you know my final thought i know i had given up on the theory but you just said something and i'm like oh she's right if we knew he had taken that much the night before and passed out and we have people yeah. corroborating that. Yeah. Then what are the chances that he would come out of that, kill her and go back into that? Like it feels like he was just down for the count. It feels unlikely. Yeah. I'm I'm alleging, I'm speculating. Of course. It just feels odd to me that he would wake up. They'd get into, you know, because again at what time? Like you know, the timeline is just all off. Again, the yeah. truth lies with the other people that are in that room. And, yeah. if, you know, Neon Leon and Rockets Red Glare both agree that Rockets was the last one in there. There's someone else that can agree, that can corroborate that Neon Leon was the second last, which then proves, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I just think that it, you could have built a story. And again, Nancy, she was failed by doctors at the beginning, who I'm sure had the right intentions, but did not serve her ultimately. Her family had great intentions, but again, I feel like missed the mark, I think, a little bit at times. I mean, again, blessed. It, it was a different time. They were trying, but – and then in the end, police failed her. They did not look into her murder as in any sort of serious way, and that is just, again, so sad. Um, but again, I think that this was a great episode. I learned a lot. And I think it was great discourse. So I thank you so much for your work. It was fabulous as always. And uh, – Listen, I am uh, jazzed about the next episode, which we're going to talk about in a, in a quick, hot second. Uh, but thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this journey. If you haven't given us a follow on social media yet, do it now. At True Crime and Cocktails on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, at Not Detectives on Twitter. We're on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Cocktails, where we have bonus episodes, live monthly Q&As, a poll you can take part in. There's a newsletter Christy writes every month. It's a whole lot of fun. We have a merch store, truecrewmerch.com, the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails merch. And I think that that's it. Did I forget anything? There's so many things to say. I don't think you forgot, but I'm realizing in my spiel earlier, I I said we were at True Crime and Cocktails on Twitter. We aren't. <laughs> it's too many characters. Well, listen. And not detectives. The point is, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, I will post so everybody can see Kermit and Piggy in Thank their God. Sid and Nancy glory. I can't And wait. it'll give me an excuse to post Dave Grohl again. <laughs> I can't. And that's the gift I want yeah. you to have. Yeah. Um, oh, because it's a gift in my life, too. Yeah. It really is. Anyway, uh, listen, thank you again so much for listening to this episode of the show. We are so grateful. If you'd like to, give us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. They go a long way, and it's nice. It's nice to read the nice ones, and they drown out the the cries of the sad, mean ones. So uh, head on over there if you like, and uh, leave a 
comment. Um, do you want to tell the people about the next episode of the show? Sure. I assume I have it written correctly. I did not double check. I believe you do. Yes. <laughs> okay, thank God. <laughs> I had other things to look into. Of course. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Curse of the Chippendales. That's right, dear listeners. We're going to be talking about that wild true crime case. Uh, there has been some documentaries about it recently, and I don't need to tell you, Christy's going to get into all of it, and I'm here for it. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Dave Kroll. Good night, Taylor Hawkins as Nancy. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.